0: Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's the new longest episode ever, a new record, and I cannot think of a more worthy subject, someone I've wanted to talk to for years on this show You may know her from the band The Frumpies. You may know her from Girl Sperm. You may know her from My New Boyfriend or Severed Lethargy or Spider on the Webs or The Go Team or Some Velvet Sidewalk or The Old Haunts. Or you may also know her from Bikini Kill, the legend, the punk god, Toby Vail is on the show today. More on that in one second. But first, this is a good one. If you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That and an Instagram page and a Facebook page for Turn Out a Punk are all run by my brother and show producer and guest booker, extraordinaire Tristan Abraham, and you will get the message to me. Thank you, Tristan, for all the hard work you do for the show. You can find me on Twitter or Instagram at left Damien To support this show, tell all your friends about it. Let them know. ...about this podcast. You can also subscribe to it and rate it on the platform you're listening to it on. You can head over to turnedoutapunk.com and grab a t-shirt or uh, or just keep listening. That's a great way to support too. Uh, I play in a band. We're called Fucked Up. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc. We have a brand new record coming out in... well, we've got a brand new record that's out now called Oberon... Got another new record coming in January. There's a lot going on in Fucked Up World. So, once again, head over to fuckedup.cc and find out more for yourself. All right. Man, I flew through that this week. On to today's show. I'm excited. I'm excited for you to hear this one. Toby Vale is here. I have wanted to talk to Toby for a very long time. Years ago, I played a show with Toby in Spider in the Webs with Fucked Up, and it was a a great show, but I didn't really get a chance to, you know, sit down and talk to Toby. So, oh boy, here it is. This is a, this is it. Uh, This goes all over the place because Toby's tastes are amazingly all over the place when it comes to punk rock and someone who connects so many disparate worlds, someone who has brought so much to this culture, who knows so much about this culture. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I, I want to just prattle on about how, much of a fan I am of of Toby and everything she's done. But I think that comes across in the episode. Bikini Kill have announced their uh, 2023 dates, including the much postponed Toronto date where I'll finally get to see them. Hopefully fingers crossed that I'm not going to be on tour during that. You can find out more information over there at bikinikill.com. If you have not heard Bikini Kill before, you got some homework to do. Check out all the incredible stuff that Bikini Kill has put out, but don't sleep on all the other great bands that Toby's involved in. Toby is a hardcore kid lifer and girl sperm. Toby's fantastic latest project, have a brand new LP, the muse ascends, and you can find out all about that over there on the, on the internet. More specifically at, uh, uh living And you can check out girl sperm stuff over there. It's a super group. There's lots of, uh, Lots of great people in this band, a fantastic record. Pick that up now. Uh, that, that's it. I don't want to prattle on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Toby Vale on Turned Out a Punk. Toby, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, yeah. My pleasure.
0: Well, as I was kind of telling you off air, you are, you are kind of like one of the penultimate guests for this thing. And I've been doing it now for like, I guess, eight years, which feels weird to say. But uh, I've wanted to talk to you for this thing since day one because I feel like, <laughs> yeah. well, I just feel like you connect so many disparate worlds of punk music and you just reading things that you've written over the years on your blog or in, in, in Jigsaw just you, you have the sort of passion for putting together this punk rock puzzle in the same way that I kind of feel that passion. So I, I can't wait to do this with you. Cool. Well, I got to start it off though, the way they all start off, which is Toby, how did you get in a punk though? Do you remember the first time you ever came across um, it?
1: So uh, I've obviously been thinking about this question and I have to say that I do not know the answer. Um, but the reason why I don't know, it might be interesting. Uh Basically, I probably saw it on TV. Um, I was looking on YouTube because I was like, uh, I, I sort of remember like punk being on sixty minutes, like when this either like when the Sex Pistols were in the U.S. or uh, you know maybe even before that. But I couldn't find any of that. But um, so basically, like uh, I got into it just because I was a music fan, and um, or and but like at first when I saw it on TV. I was like eight years old or, you know, seven or eight, nine years old. And, uh, I remember the safety pin through the cheek yes. and just being like incredibly horrified. Like, why are these people doing that mom? You know, and just trying to understand, it got stuck in my head, you know, like Texas chainsaw massacre, like Jaws, like it was just like visceral horror. Like these people are like puking and cutting themselves and like, hurting themselves and they look like zombies like night of the living dead like it was really freaky to to me at the time
0: i think that footage too of the guy pulling on the safety pin in the cheek is i I think it's the same footage i saw it was like later used in one of those rock and roll documentaries and it's it's the it's the sex pistols atlanta show i believe Maybe yeah, I
1: did see that one. It was like NBC or something. Or yeah. I'm not, My mom was like, yeah, I remember that. But like, I couldn't really remember. So then I asked my dad and he was like, oh, we read about it in Rolling Stone, you know, and I was like, I don't really remember reading. You know, I, I definitely saw it on TV. So, yeah, my parents were, in, were into, um, they very quickly got into um, all of the bands like Elvis Costello and The Clash and um, Devo and um, like my mom really liked the Ramones and Devo and um, my dad really liked Elvis Costello like he was obsessed with Elvis Costello and so that was probably third grade for me so that was like 78 around then 78 79 and I just thought my parents were weird but like I didn't really know how weird they were because we lived in the woods so we were sort of like not really in any kind of pop culture universe so like our our like knowledge of rock and roll was like and movies and all that was like heavily curated like i would say by my parents and my uncle who was a film critic in seattle
0: well given how your parents like uh you know loved all that early punk stuff were they like fans of like the sonics and the whalers and all that kind of proto-punk stuff that was going on in the Pacific uh, my
1: dad yeah my dad's a drummer and he like grew up in that. like he's a little bit older i mean sorry a little bit younger than the sonics but uh he grew up in that same area not tacoma but auburn and uh so he was yeah he plays drums exactly like that style of sonics kind of
0: yeah it's awesome and i was i was talking with ben gibbard about it how like you know in the same way ac dc permeates every band from australia's dna on some level it seems i i feel that's kind of like the sonics in the pacific northwest too
1: uh yeah for sure i mean uh i mean you could fast forward to like when i actually started playing drums or you know getting into uh, local music and i just remember like at that point, like, you know, we were living back in Olympia and my dad was playing in a band again, so he had his drums set up and, um, you know, I, I decided at some point that I was, after really rejecting it, like I had decided at one point I was interested. So I was like, well, show me your punk records. And he did, he got out, you know, the Sex Pistols, like the Rizzillos, but he also got out the Sonics and the Kinks, you know, like you really got me and stuff like that. And I was trying to figure out how to learn how it all sort of fit together
0: because mm-hmm. i can hear that in your drumming you know that kind of like i guess pacific northwest garage stomp
1: yeah so for that. sure yeah that was like my dad's level of instruction he was like just listen to this you know it wasn't like he showed me anything. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah definitely an influence but um you know like to go back to like when we we're living in the woods like we lived in this logging town in the 70s that was um. Uh, uh it's called nacelle it's like across the bridge from the from Astoria it's like right on the Oregon border mm-hmm. and like you know people talk about like how can you still live in Olympia it's such a small town I was like you you have no idea what a small town is <laughs> like like this is like an hour into the woods from Aberdeen you know like and it's a logging town and my we live there because my dad got a job at the jail and so we lived in this apartment building in the woods and there's no town there's like a grocery store there's a bank there's like uh five churches and you know there's just like there's nothing there and like tv barely came in and we got like a little bit of radio but you know it was we were way out there like
0: yeah and olympia is a pretty cool small town for like small towns like it's unlike any it's other one
1: not i still reject yeah. this idea it's not small it's like there's like tens of thousands of people that live in this area you know like this is like there was like 300 people that lived there and like even that like i'm like where did all those people live like i only saw like 20 you know like yeah and so like uh i really didn't fit in there at all and um it was you know whatever fitting in is but uh so then when we moved back to Olympia, I was like, oh, I got another chance, you know, to like make friends or, you know, whatever, like connect with people and not be such a weirdo. But yeah, as soon as I got to school here, I was like, uh, you know, I think like, I really, I, I just didn't really know how weird my parents were. So I like talked to people like, you know, like Devo or, you know, and they were was like, what? Huh? I'm like, <laughs> obviously, like, this is like 79, 80 or whatever, you know, it's so a, I was like, so trying really hard to connect with, kids and like I met this girl in um my neighborhood and she had a skateboard and I w- I had a skateboard and I didn't ha- I didn't really have a bicycle I had a skateboard for some reason and then um I was like oh that girl has a skateboard I don't know any- I've never met any girls that had skateboards so I thought she was really cool and I was like but she looked like really heavy metal you know like a uh, feathered hair and all that and uh, I remember the first thing she said to me was like oh uh I'm gonna be the first girl um quarterback on the NFL and I was like, <laughs> that's okay.
2: awesome
1: really weird <laughs> you <know>? There's no <laughs> girls that play football it's just you play football it's like no and then um so basically like through our friendship you know she was super into heavy metal she really was she'd gone to see black sabbath her she had older brothers brothers sisters and um she liked rush and april wine and like ted nugent all this shit my dad would like you know just roll his eyes about or whatever but you know she liked the cars and i was like oh the cars like okay so the cars she knows the cars so we can listen to that you know and anyways like she ended up becoming my best friend and like i was trying to get her kind of to go new wave and she was trying to get me to go like heavy metal (laughs) and we would just like skate around and kind of like fight about music and stuff and then um eventually we just both went punk rock (laughs) so that was the common ground
0: (laughs) And isn't that the legendary kind of story they tell about, I guess, mainly music in Seattle, but it's sort of that twin, it's the metal meeting, the punk new wave kind of thing. Yeah. And something coming out of the middle
1: and we had like a really great radio station i mean it's it was pop music like you know 80s new wave or whatever but like it was great like for a long time it was really good it was called kyyx and um from seattle and so i got her listening to that and um we went to see the go-go's and they were they became my favorite band i joined the fan club i was like really obsessed so she got into the go-go's and that was cool oh but you know the ramones like was probably the first punk band that i liked cuz my parents like when we were living in the woods or whatever like they would go to like the um, record stores and buy records. So I remember one time they came home and they had four records. And this was like 1978 and it was like Road to Ruin, um, Are We Not Men, Devo. Um, probably the first or the second Elvis Costello record, I'm not sure. And Parallel Alliance by Blondie. So like, you know, that was kind of like. I didn't know that was the same thing as the safety pin, you know, and it's not right. really um, so I I didn't know it was I didn't know any of that was weird. Like Blondie became pop music very quickly. So people knew Blondie or whatever, but like the Ramones, I I had no clue that they were even supposed to be punk. Like, and, you know, I loved them and my sister loved them. She was just a little, little kid, but, you know, we went to see rock and roll high school when it came to Seattle and it was like a double feature with that John Ritter movie, like America, America thon. Do you know the oh, movie?
0: Yeah. We're really right. weird. Yeah, from the video <laughs> store. I can picture the cover.
1: It's a really weird movie. Uh, but anyway, so like, we saw it in the theater. So, of course, you know, I just thought the Ramones were, like, the biggest band in the world. And uh, just really had no idea that they weren't, like, Cheap Trick or, you know, whatever. But, yeah, like, I got Heidi into my best friend. I got her into the Ramones and the Go-Go's. So, you know, she didn't really succeed in getting me into metal. I got into some of it, like, a little bit later through, like, the Melvins and stuff. But, like, definitely not at that point.
0: There's some interesting metal stuff too that comes out of the Pacific Northwest. Like that band Enemy and there's some like weird proto death metal and sludgy stuff too. Obviously the Melvins type stuff as well.
1: Yeah, and then like my parents also they took me and Heidi to out to Evergreen when uh, Decline of Western Civilization played and that I think it was like right around when it came out like 1982 or something. Yeah. And, uh, um I remember my mom who was like I thought it was really weird. And she liked Devo and the Ramones and the B-52s, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, she was horrified by decline. She was just horrified. Like, she was just like, uh, you know, she didn't like what Black Flag had to say. She didn't like what Darby had to say. She she was just like, oh, wow, that's really disturbing. You know, like, um, and we were kind of intrigued, you know, like, and and I think that, like, people don't really understand, maybe, like, younger people don't really understand, like, would come to like look at hardcore punk or you know american stuff from that era to realize like how offensive it was to like hippies and baby boomers like you know who were basically our parents you know and it it really was disturbing them to see these kids like you know like the thing what does child or sorry uh ron reese say he says something like um you know, he has like, picks up the underwear and he's like, this is from one of my victims or whatever. And and then like, uh, you know, Darby says like a racial slur or something. And I don't know, it's just, you're just kind of like, oh, that's, you're not supposed to say stuff like that. You know, like, it's yeah. like, it's like, uh, it's it a little scary. And then they on KYX, they started having this radio show called um, on Mondays, Monday nights called Hardcore Mondays. And it was like, normally they'd be playing like Thompson Twins, Culture Club, Go-Go's, that kind of stuff. But on Hardcore Mondays, they'd play like Black Flag, Dead Kennedys, and all that kind of stuff. And so yeah, Heidi and I started getting into that. But also like my dad, both my parents, like they would go down to Berkeley and Oakland and um, visit their friends. And they went to see like um, Mabuhay Gardens shows. Like they saw like the No Sisters and Pearl Harbor and the Explosions. They saw like X play like um, like a dorm at Berkeley or something.
0: That's and awesome.
1: That was all really early. They saw the clash in like 1979. And I remember like my mom and dad went to see the specials and the police at a really small show at the show box in Seattle. It was like 1981. And they came home and my mom woke me up and she was probably kind of drunk. And she was like, I going to teach you kids how to do the pogo. <laughs> <laughs> mom, was like, let us sleep. Okay. You know? So it was kind of like this weird thing of like like one time my mom was like hey you i'm gonna take you and Heidi to the Ramones and i was like mom i have a book report due tomorrow like i'm i don't want to go and she did my sister and i was like you know of course she's like you're gonna regret it and i was like oh yeah okay so i could have seen the remote with DOA but i didn't want to go apparently I was like, it wasn't like I didn't like them. I did. I just was, you know, trying to rebel in all these confusing ways. But then my mom and and dad also, like, my dad was playing in this band called the Tapeworms, which were, um, they're sort of based on in Oakland and Olympia. They were like a recording project, which is why they called the Tapeworms. They recorded with Steve Fisk at Evergreen. And then my mom knew about some of those bands, like in the early 80s, like the West Side Lockers and, um, millions of bugs they're these kind of like new wavy power pop bands and they had like the sub pop five cassette or whatever so that you know they knew a little bit about that stuff but um yeah when decline came out and like we started getting more interested in hardcore my parents were not really not into that they were just they weren't into the music and They thought it was disturbing. And um, I remember Heidi and I were like skateboarding around our neighborhood. And we found we used to like go into these areas like on the edge, like the sprawl of the neighborhood where like there was housing foundations and they were like building more tract housing or whatever. And we found this housing foundation that had like a cigar box in it and had like some cigarettes and a lighter and it had like these tapes and they were punk tapes like some kid was hiding their like cigarettes and like. Their punk tapes that they were hiding from their parents and so we like took you know we got our Walkman and we put it on I was like what is this music you know and then like so we took the tape home and we like copied it we like taped the tape and then we put it back <laughs> and we like write this kid notes but we didn't know who they were um we kind of figured out later but anyways like so then we spent we we're just like on this quest like who like they didn't have any track listings, so we're like who are these bands on this tape and it's like I think like one of them was like ill repute and one of them was like the freeze, but it took us so long to figure it out. You know, it was like, it was like kind of like a scavenger hunt for us to like go around and try to meet people that might know the songs that were on that tape.
0: That's awesome. What a cool story (laughs) of finding punk tapes. (laughs) Yeah,
1: it was weird. Um, But then, you know, like we started going, we got older and we started taking the bus downtown to skateboard and then uh my mom took us to see to the show it was like rock against reagan and it was at the Capitol steps and it was that band um sticky can stone we're doing like a tour with a school bus and having local bands play to try to get reagan to not be reelected or whatever so that was like october 83 and there's all these skateboarders there that were like our age you know and there's like oh these guys definitely know the bands on the tape you know we have to we have to meet these people, but it was also like really scary. Like my mom was like, oh, you guys know how to, you know, skateboard, go skate with those guys. And like our skateboards were like seventies, you know, like plasticky kind of looking boards that you would get just like at the mall or, you know, like a Fred Meyer or something. And, you know, these were like real skate punks. And so, yeah, we kind of were on a quest. We go downtown and walk around and then be like, follow these kids around and then ask them, you know, what music they liked and stuff like that. And then um, that way we started finding out about shows and, you know, um, eventually we went to some shows like Downtown in the Alley that like Beat Happening played and like um, this band called Mr. Yuck that were some skate skaters that were our age. And um, then I think it was like maybe a couple months later we saw the wipers play out at evergreen um with pell and uh that's the yeah we didn't go my mom didn't take us we just found out about it from our friend's older brother and we took the bus out there so we were probably like 14 and then um after that the tropicana opened in olympia which was the first all-ages club that um it was around from like 84 to 85 and like all the bands played there. And so we just went to all those shows and that at that point we were just, you know, full fledged punk rockers. <laughs> Go,
0: going back before that point, it's, it's fascinating how punk kind of goes to Seattle first. Like it's almost like, like uh Detroit in that way. Like you've got the Tupperwares and this sort of uh wave of kids that were like on board right from the get-go i guess it goes back to like all that proto-punk that we were talking about but were your parents like familiar with like china what is it china kaminas and and the max and the beakers and those types of bands
1: um i kind of doubt it they had like that one sub pop five tape mm-hmm. and then my dad was also like you know communicating a lot with his bandmate down in, in berkeley and like i said they would go down there and see bands um and for some reason they were obsessed with this band, the no sisters. My dad was like, it was like, everyone looked like Elvis Costello. It was like four Elvis Costellos. And you know, he, he really was a big Elvis Costello fan. So I have thought.
0: the seven inch and they all do look <laughs> shockingly like Elvis Costello.
1: Yeah. He, he really liked uh, for whatever reason. I don't really even know what they sound like, but he talked about them a lot, but um, I don't know that they knew like people up in Seattle so much. I I do know that at one point, uh, Oh, this is kind of funny. Like, you know, like I was saying, like I didn't know the Ramones were punk, and if I knew that, I think I would have been disturbed because I I did think that the safety pin in the cheek thing was really disturbing, yeah. and um I thought about it a lot actually, like kind of like those are like monster people or zo- you know Walking Dead or something, but um like uh I remember my dad got this tape in the mail and him and his his friend and the tapeworms would like they would exchange uh. Tapes that they were tracking on their four tracks, and you know, song ideas through the mail. So we'd get these packages all the time. But at the beginning of the tapes, sometimes there'd be like the new single that he just bought, so he recorded for us, and we listen to it. and And I was like, "What is this music? It's so good!" And it was um, this is like 7, 1979 or something. It was the first Avengers EP.
0: Oh, that's wild! That's and awesome. I was
1: just, I was like, I loved it. And and my dad was like, "Well, I got to tell you, that's punk rock." And I was just <laughs> like, "No, that's not. That's not punk rock." <laughs> like, I was like that's I he's like yeah that's punk rock that's a punk rock band right there you like it and I was just like oh my god I like a punk band I don't want anyone at school to find out you know
0: did, did the tapeworms ever record records or is it just tapes
1: nope they just have tapes they didn't even release them they just you know it's kind of like a an ongoing project it's, they still exist
0: that's awesome yeah They got, is there any way to hear it or is it just for for you guys
1: mm-hmm. They might have some stuff online. I feel like they had okay. a MySpace at one point. They might have like a SoundCloud or something. Um, yeah, we're trying to get them to record because it's actually the same person that was in my dad's uh, band, like all of his early bands, like in the '60s. It's like his guitar player that um, he's worked with his whole life.
0: That's that's awesome. What is it? What's the vibe of the band? Or I guess it changes, right? Because it's been around it changes, for so long. Yeah.
1: Um, I don't know. Like I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> another really big influence on um, on the uh, both of them was bruce springsteen like my dad my family is like big springsteen fans and i was never i i shouldn't say i was never but i was in the 80s i was not a bruce springsteen fan in the 70s i liked it um but that was like that's like a weird thing like you know that growing up in my family and not being a bruce springsteen fan that's like <laughs> kind of like a it, that's probably me rebelling i guess
0: <laughs> yeah that's your outlier like, you know,
1: it's very songwritery but it's also like you know uh kind of like like you know they're coming from that sonics kind of place and whaler's kind of place where it's like it's like it's garage but it's also like r&b kind of like really fueled up um fast r&b type music That i mean that's how i would see it
0: it's also interesting how there's such a strong connection between and i guess it's because it's such a major city close by but between uh seattle and to sort of the bay area san francisco like how many bands moved down there from that first wave right from the mentors to the lewd to the the screamers i guess moving down to la but like i guess everyone just kind of like moved south yeah from that very and first i guess
1: wave. uh the reason why i thought of that is because i guess penelope houston was fr- living in seattle too or from there or something mm-hmm. which yeah like so I, I didn't i didn't know that it was you know i i even remember when we started bikini Kill, like just being like I don't think there's ever been a band better than the Avengers. Maybe we should try to be that good. You know, like, (laughs) like just kind of go back to that. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Like, that was one of the starting points for me of, like, what I wanted, like, to do. And, you know, obviously, they were super influenced by the Sex whistles, but I definitely got into them before I got into the Sex whistles. I remember seeing PIL on TV on American Bandstand, and that was a big moment because it was, like, breaking the wall or whatever. I was like, oh, this is so weird
0: that's one of the all-time great tv band performances like when he's pushing all the people from the audience onto the stage like
1: yeah phew. and it was exciting because we watched american bandstand like every week you know me and my mom and my sister and it was like oh god like this is really weird you know it was funny but it was kind of scary too i don't it's, i don't know why like like maybe it's just like because i was a child but like i was really actually like viscerally afraid of punk
0: yeah. I, I think it was, you know, especially the way it was presented, even by the time I, you know, a few years later when I started seeing it pop up around my kind of like world, it was presented as being something so adversarial and confrontational. Like you were saying, the swastika that immediately sets off alarm bells. Like it it's not like an appealing well, yeah. thing.
1: For sure. And you know, there was kids in this in the scene. there There's one kid that was um he actually wasn't white. He was like from Korea, but like he had for a short time was like wearing a swastika shirt, and I was like, "Oh man, I can't, I can't let my mom see me with this guy." You know, like I, I mm-hmm. and in my head, I was like, "I know he doesn't mean it," but you know that way or whatever. But like she wouldn't understand, you know. And it's like, well, I now <laughs> when I think back on, them, I'm like, I don't really understand. <laughs> like, no. Other than that, he was like a real, uh, a really big um, Sid Vicious Sex Pistols fan.
0: That seems to be, I guess, where it kind of permeated from. Like, you know, that band Pure Hell from New York. Have you ever heard of that band? Fantastic first wave all black punk band that's just killer. And I was looking for a photo of them to to put in something I was writing, and I could not find one without them wearing swastika shirts. But they were also backing up Sid Vicious in his band at that point, too. So I think it was part of the uniform at a certain level.
1: Yeah, and you know, obviously, like, I mean, especially the era we're living through now, like, that stuff is so loaded, but um, yeah, you know, and where I feel like now it just seems like absurd, you know, that people were doing that, but uh, yeah, different context, different, you know, I don't know, like, like a band like The Mentors or something like that, like, people can say, like, oh, yeah, like, it's funny, it was a joke, or even like The Meatmen or something like that, it's like, it's funny, it's a joke, it's like yeah I mean okay so maybe they didn't mean it but like you know there's still there's still like it feeds into this whole like culture of like hating women and you know like where you know there's actual real violence happening
0: well it's like do you know are you familiar with the band white pride from St Louis no they're like uh weirdly Jeff Tweedy uh, the, the original roadie for um Wilco was in this band and they were kind of a band with members were, weren't all white for this band. And it was very much them sending up neo-Nazis and making fun of it. But years later, a neo-Nazi label bootlegged the recording and, you know, not everyone got the quote unquote joke. Also, yeah. uh, have you seen that mentors documentary that came out? It yeah. really, it really <laughs> does not. It does not, uh, paint a really nice picture as you could imagine, yeah. but there's uh, a a chunk in it where the guitar player is quite adamant that it wasn't all a joke, which makes it kind of irredeemable.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going by like what older people would say or whatever. But mm-hmm. you know, but I mean we can talk about anything you want, but like that year of the Tropicana in Olympia was really um that was my formative scene, you know, that was and it, it was over by like early 85 and all the bands that played there, like, I mean, it started out and it was just like a lot of local bands and the Melvins played their first shows there that were not like, you know, in the Montesano thriftway parking lot or whatever. (laughs) And then they would play there all the time. And then like bands, like the Fastbacks and green river and, um, girl trouble from Tacoma and noxious fumes. There's a bunch of hardcore bands from here. Like that people don't know about, like, um, uh, gestures of chaos. Immoral Roberts, Idol Worship, um, NBS, Nazi Boy Scouts. That was like ex-Mr. Yuck. And then, uh, I don't know, Disturbed Peace, uh, Nile Obstat. It's <laughs> like all these weird bands of <laughs> uh, kids, you know. Um, and then, of course, Beat Happening and then Young Pioneers and um, Wimps. Be, these are different wimps and different beat happening or different not beat the same beat happening. Young,
0: pioneers. Different, yeah, different different young pioneers, yeah.
1: And then um uh I remember the three o'clock played. Um you from know, LA, like the, that band? Yeah, yeah. And and I remember they played right away. That was like one of the first shows, maybe the first out of town shows. And I was like, oh my god, this band, you know, they're just playing to like in Olympia to just for five dollars or three dollars or whatever and they're like as good as the go-go's like I was just I was blown away by that I was just like I I couldn't explain to people how great it was you know I was like the level I mean it was and I was no musician at that point really but I was just like I was like they're so good they're just like incredible they were so good and like all these mod kids came down from Seattle on their scooters and um yeah it was wild and, but then, you know, like another time it'd be like butthole surfers or 45 grave or like, um, the crucifix or de or, um, slayer played there. Like in like June 84,
0: like on the 12 inch uh, tour, I guess. Right. Or even before that, maybe.
1: I don't know. I remember we went to their sound check and it was like, they, they were driving like a sports car. I remember that <laughs> like, they came to sound check at like noon or something. And, you know, we just went there, uh, in the afternoon and they were they were playing so I was like this is interesting <laughs> that's <laughs> you, awesome. you played there the rejectors um I don't know there's yeah a ton of bands
0: so again can, did 10 minute warning is that kind of that era I guess too or is that later uh,
1: I think no I don't remember 10 minute warning um playing there uh Green River played there uh several times and then um this band called vampire circus he sluts those are Tacoma bands uh i feel like patty schummel's little brother was maybe in one of those bands but i can't really remember uh larry he's in what is he in um uh, death valley girls
0: yep yeah. yeah when patty was on the show we talked about some of the, I think we might have even talked about a soul band on that one too. Yeah,
1: and I feel like I met her there. Like I feel like she, there a lot of Tacoma people would come to Olympia. Um, and then you know, uh, I feel like I'm forgetting some big things that happened. JFA, bang, <laughs> Tales of Terror. There, I mean, it was great. It was everyone. Amazing. Uh, And, but then also like op magazine was from here. So they had this like op magazine music conference and that was really weird. Um, It was like white house played.
2: Did you uh, see
1: that? Yeah. What was the show? Like, um, I just remember it was piercingly loud, you know, like very like, I I mean, like beyond harsh noise, like very, very troubly loud. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like you had to kind of go outside. I don't remember anything about the performance. I just remember the sound. It was like painful. And uh, it was interesting though to me, you know, Michael Board played that. I think maybe Eugene Chadbourne, John Foster, who was the you know, one of the people who did Op Magazine um, performed. And some of the early, uh, there was this band called Wild Wild Spoons. <laughs> and I don't know if you're familiar with that book, Cassette Mythos, um, some oh. of the early... Do you know about op magazine it was like based in olympia and it was uh it was uh done in the early 80s and it was all independent music they would review and uh, cover independent music they went through the whole alphabet there's the a issue you know all the way through and they had like a policy of like not to have like um a white male on the cover i guess which is kind of interesting because and it wasn't just punk it was all kinds of music on independent labels so the radio station out there chaos had the same policy where um if you got a radio show you could only play 20 percent of your music could come from um major labels 80 percent had to be independent so i got a radio show right pretty much right away like um well not right away but I, i guess it was like in the end of 85 i started doing that and um You know we just volunteered and we could go out to the record library and listen to everything and just tape it and hang out and play whatever we wanted it was great you
0: when did you move to eugene because i know you moved to eugene oregon for a little while right
1: um yeah i moved there in 88 so that was like after high school um but yeah like i started you know doing the radio show well before that and um started playing in bands after the Tropicana closed. After the Tropicana closed it was like a real bummer because we had to go to Seattle to see all ages shows and then of course as everyone knows they banned all ages shows in Seattle after the like infamous circle jerks riot at Gorilla Gardens but you know we went to see every after Tropicana closed we were just like addicted to going to see these hardcore bands so you know Go see Seven Seconds, um, TSOL, like I don't know who else. Uh, The Melvins, every time they play, we try to go. But you know, I was still like 15, 16. I didn't have a car. So we had to get rides, and sometimes you get stuck there and it'd be crazy. Oh, DOA would play Olympia too. They played the Tropicana and they also played Curl Gardens, I think. Um, But and then after that was Community World Theater in Tacoma, and we would all go to see shows there
0: i saw you tweeting the other day about beyond possession and they're such a fantastic band really (laughs) obscure up here but see that was
1: like i was kind of like preparing for this and so i was like i should look at some of these bands i barely remember you know and i i do remember like when i saw the accused at the tropicana i was like well this is very different you know um you know, obviously they were influenced by metal, and I, as I said, like I had no background in that other than like Kiss. Like I, you know, I knew who they were, but it was kind of like the Ramones, where like I didn't know the Ramones were punk. Like I didn't know that Kiss were even like I thought Kiss were like a cartoon. You know, the, yeah. like I, I mean, there were there was like the Halloween, spe- the Pollen Halloween special, and they were Kiss meets the Phantom was the like an yeah, uh, Booby Do and stuff. Yeah. Like I, I didn't really understand, you know, like and the Ramones just kind of seemed like the Archies or like Josie and the Pussy Cats, you know, like. Like a comic book band, you know, bubblegum or something. but it was you know, it was kind of so with the accused it was like, wow, oh, these guys are they were like they are actually incredible they are incredible. and then um you know, obviously the Melvins went through their like very fast phase and then they got uh they got Dale. I remember I, I think I saw the first Melvins show. Buzz told me I saw the first one, but it, then if you look it up, it, it's like, uh. It's like, well, that wasn't really the first one because they, they played a couple times in Montecino or Aberdeen or something, but like all, for all practical purposes, they were the first. The show. real first show. Yeah, the official first show. Yeah, before show. Dale was in the band. And then like, um, I was talking to them a couple years ago and, and I and I was like, oh yeah, well I I didn't really like you guys at first. I remember the first time I actually liked you was when you opened for DOA, and they're like, that was Dale's first show, and I was like, okay, and Dale was like, yes, and I was like, yeah, you weren't that good until Dale joined, <laughs> you know, and then you know at that point I was like, I was like, well, th- these guys are incredible, so I had to kind of open my mind to like you know this kind of heavy music or whatever and then they like slowed down or whatever but so anyways uh i saw beyond possession play I, I don't know if it was with false liberty or the accused or the melvins or i don't really know poison idea maybe but it was at this place called um the crescent ballroom in tacoma and um i didn't remember anything about it so i was like i don't you know i think they're a skate band so i like looked it up and i was like holy shit like they're incredible well, mm-hmm. they're totally incredible. Like all of, and it, it kind of started coming back to me. I was like, oh, I remember. I remember sitting on the stage and watching this guy play drums, which is something I would do a lot. And in fact, that got me into trouble at the Tropicana. Like, I remember I was watching the Crucifix, and I was like sitting on the side of the stage, like watching the drummer. Which, as we know, you know, he went on to be in uh, Sonic e- I'm forgetting his name right now. Even Steve, though I know Shelley. Steve Shelley. Steve yeah. Shelley. Yeah. So I was like watching him, the drummer because I was like, this guy's incredible. And um, like, I was like 14 or something, and Doc Dart, like picked me up like with both shoulders and threw me against the wall like as he like like just went manically like across the room or whatever and I was like okay so there's (laughs) immediately like I saw like stars I almost got like knocked out and then I was but of course like I was like also just like really thrilled in this way because I was like this is incredible because it was the crucifix and like you know they're incredible so you're just totally and I was like oh there's no there's no there's no outside there's no like standing over here like you're in the show and it's dangerous (laughs) like that was you know the message or whatever and then I think back I'm like oh yeah like if I had been at that show and I saw like the singer for this band like like basically physically assault like a 14 year old girl I would have been like no fuck that guy but like the girl was me and I was just like oh my god this is incredible you know so um he, yeah I mean there was like a lot of violence that shows too it wasn't that weird for something like that to happen
0: he's a guy who also I think in the last few years like a lot more stories have come out about but like another guy who like you're saying like has that kind of low-key not Gigi Allen level or anything but like that low-key kind of like uh, this wouldn't fly in the present day kind of energy
1: yeah but also like you know there's also that feeling of like when you went to a punk show i mean it was like uh, like watching a horror movie in a way like you were like like what i'm talking about like that kind of like safety pin thing like it was scary like you thought you might die you know like it, like i would feel like that you know like and that's one of the moments i can pinpoint and it it's not like i don't know like you know i'm not i don't have kids but like I'm close with some of my friend's kids. So I'm thinking of like, you know, my, my friend's kid who's 15. I was like, yeah, yeah. If I saw him do that to her, I would not like that band. <laughs> you know
0: what I yeah. Mean? yeah. Well, and I'm going to like, I'm going to shows years later in a post Nirvana kind of environment where this is a little more mainstream, but there's still shit that I was privy to and saw where now I have a 13 year old and that's when I was starting to go to shows. I'm like, there's no way in hell I would want him yeah. doing this stuff or seeing the stuff that I was around at that age.
1: For sure, you know, and, like, uh, in some ways, I got, like, really burnt out on hardcore, like, uh, pretty immediately, like, I mean, it's not hardcore, like, as we would say now, but, like, what is that kind of, like, generic kind of uniform, like, you have to follow these rules, and, you know, um, unfortunately, like, a lot of my, um, my interest in certain scenes were sort of, like, uh, like, I'm totally ignorant of, like, because, I associate it with these like really fucked up people that you know, like there was some kids that were into Boston and um New York hardcore and they were just assholes, you know. And I was like, so I remember like my friend um borrowed like an SSD record from one of those guys, and I and I just in my head I was like, Oh, that band, that band must be assholes because these assholes like them, you yeah. know and yeah. then like i don't even remember like reconsidering in that until like many years later you know and you're just like filtered through all this kind of prejudice in a way but i you know i was really drawn to like bands like de and i actually was like a huge fang fan and um you know obviously that guy killed got a little weird yeah so you know and now you you don't go around saying how much you are a Fang fan but no sorry they're great they were they really were a great band.
0: Yeah, the, well, that's, or like
1: say like verbal abuse like m- one of my friends like you know went home with one of those guys and uh you know we were 14 and yeah. just it's a lot of weird stuff happened
0: it, it, it's like this weird amazing neverland place that i'd like to paint it as on the show where like you as a young person have you can express yourself and be on stage and get considered seriously by adults but It's also a place with not a lot of supervision, a built-in distrust of authority that allows predators to kind of thrive and survive in a lot of these scenes, sadly. Yeah.
1: I mean, but then, you know, there's the other side of that too, where like, um, and I experienced both sides of it for, uh, you know, as a, as a kid, but there's the other side of it too, where like, if, if you are in an all ages scene, you have older people around and, they kind of look out for the younger people. Like an, it, uh, the vast majority of like older guys really looked out for us. You know, mm-hmm. they'd be like, somebody would get too drunk. Like, I mean, we were drinking at 14 or, you know, whatever, like doing bad shit. And, you know, someone would get too fucked up. And then like some older guys who weren't assholes or predators would be like, no, we need to get her, you know, over here. We need to, you need to take your friend home and like give us rides and stuff like that. Um, whereas, like, say my sister, who was a cheerleader and, you know, kind of in a, a completely different um, different kind of adolescent party scene, you know, they didn't have that going on. And, and I think that that's like a kind of like a positive side, you know, like, mm-hmm. I ended up hanging out like all my early boyfriends were much older than me because like the guys my own age, like really freaked me out. Like, you know, I, I just didn't feel respected.
0: Yeah. I, I guess it's like well it's and it's everyone's experience is so different in this thing you know and yeah. even within the same scenes right like just depending on who
1: for sure around. yeah um but you know like I, as I'm ta- talking about this stuff I'm also thinking about like <laughs> when the black flag played with Pete happening at the Tropicana and everyone's seen that flyer you know but um Henry was like really giving Calvin a hard time on stage just like You know interrupted the show and uh you know there's a tape of it i don't know if you've ever heard it but it's an infamous
0: uh, one it's one of the ones that like you know there's a few of these with black flag which just kind of like kind of circulates and becomes you know almost legendary at a certain point um and in this case it's not for the right reasons but this is one of those ones that just is yes very storied in terms of a live black flag set
1: yeah, well, I mean, what happened was, like, Calvin was doing his dance, and, like, me and my friends were these girls that were obsessed with B happening we We're dancing, and then, you know, it's a super punk show, like, with all these Mohawk kids and stuff, and um, uh, I just remember, like, Rollins was, like, over here, like, against the wall, and then, like, he came up to, like, Calvin, and uh, basically, he, like, took my friend's – the way I remember is he took my friend's hand – who was probably like 13 or something and like put it on Calvin's crotch and just, and she was just like trying to get away. And, and then like Calvin stopped playing, they'd be having to stop playing. And then like Henry said something like, Oh, I just can't control myself or something. you know, they he just like giving him shit for like being like, I don't know, too femme or something like that, or too girly or swinging his hips around or, you know, doing something cute or something and having like the girls like all being into it. And then like, um, calvin was just really funny and he he's just like oh that's what your mom always says like he started like playing the dozens with henry and they were just like getting into this weird thing and like i was watching the whole thing i was like this is so weird like (laughs) that's the guy from black flag. Like, ugh. like it was making me really nervous. And then, so afterwards I was like, Hey Calvin, are you okay? And like, um, he was like, Oh yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I was a little weird, you know, or whatever. But like, after that, like, I think like a lot of people in Olympia just thought like Henry was like really macho and didn't get punk or whatever. And, you know, um, you know, maybe he, like people would be like, Oh, he was not even my favorite singer black flag or whatever. That's where it but, starts. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, like, i mean henry just came to see bikini kill like in you know 2019 or whatever like you know he's he's not a bad guy he's like not you know he's not anti-girl or anti-feminist or anything but you know at the time it was like these different worlds like colliding you know it was like like are you tough or are you a wimp you know that kind of shit.
0: well that's why beat happening to me is such like and i guess go team too you know by extension like you're so punk to kind of like out punk punk, like where it's threatening to these dudes where, you know, this masculinity is obviously just a facade that insecure men put up as this sort of like wall. And it's, it's so shakeable and fallible. And like, you see it in punk and beat happening was forcing guys to confront that within themselves in a very direct way. I think.
1: I mean, to this day, I do not understand exactly what was happening. <laughs> <You> what <know? Like, laughs> i don't know like did they just think that sucked or well you know is cal calvin's from dc right he's from olympia and dc he's part of the big connection between the two scenes
0: Mm -hmm. so like did he know maybe like were they familiar with each other from out there or not not i kind of doubt it i kind of
1: doubt it because uh i think calvin like maybe went to high school I don't know his mom moved to Baltimore I think what happened is he his mom moved to Baltimore Calvin's actually from Ellensburg Washington where the Screaming Trees are from and um that's kind of how the Olympia and the Screaming Trees because I saw the first Screaming Trees show too and they're a great band um but um anyway he I think Calvin like moved his, maybe his mom moved to DC and he still was in high school or something um but yeah, he knew he knew some of those people. I I met Cynthia Connolly through Calvin and they were friends and I'm not exactly sure how, but Brendan Canty's sister lived here. So he would come out here sometimes. And I remember one time, like it was after the Rights of Spring record had come out. It was probably like 85 or 86. And um I was listening to Chaos and like. Uh, Brendan was just all of a sudden like on Calvin's radio show and I was like the guy from R- Race of Spring is an Olympia like this is really weird because I was at that point like really obsessed with DC punk and uh, hardcore or whatever and um, that revolution summer and all that and uh, they were playing that band that tape of that band the brief weeds. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah and so. Um, I was really confused and intrigued by that. Um, but yeah, like I was into all different kinds of music. Like Salem 66 was one of my favorite bands. I really liked that um compilation that Gerard put out, bands that could be God. That with like Sorry and um
0: Deep Wound Christmas. Deep
1: wound. Yeah, I'll, I played. I played like something off of that record, like on my radio show, like weekly. Like I really was into that, and I had this idea that Boston was like. Them were really cool. I just based on that record, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's a but cool also, call. Yeah. Well, I didn't a- know about like the hardcore scene really, as you know, I was saying, like, because there's these jerks that were into that music here. But um, you know, well, I mean Deep Wound, but other than that, yeah, like that kind of college rock thing and the Paisley Underground thing and the sort of indie. I, uh, like, I got really into all the um, C86 stuff, like Shop assistants and Tallulah Gosh and stuff through Calvin. But, you know, we used to, like, just go over to Calvin's house and listen to his records. One thing is funny is, like, one of the ways that, like, kids my age, like, met Calvin is... Not through Be Happening or through Chaos. It's like because he volunteered to drive the Evergreen van that went from Evergreen to downtown. So like when the bus stopped running, you could take this Evergreen van and it was free. And he was one of the drivers. So (laughs) if you get really bored or it starts raining, you just get on the bus and then like hang out with Calvin. So like, yeah, he sort of like let us make tapes at his house or, you know, whatever.
0: I remember the first time going to Olympia um and going to like the record store that Judd from Sexvid worked at and Calvin had made mixtapes that you could buy for sale and I bought a bunch of mixtapes and they were they're amazing
1: yeah uh yeah so those are from his records you know he Mm -hmm. had great records Mm -hmm. and I never like I'm not a record collector I mean I have like you can't see but like over there there's like (laughs) thousands of records but um I don't really I'm not a record collector like Calvin like I didn't buy records in the 80s. I actually, I did probably had like 100 records and I lost most of them in Eugene. But, um, you know, like when you, <laughs> you, I sold all my stuff one time, I lost a bunch of records another time. And then I moved to DC and I lost a bunch of records that time. So I don't really have any of my 80s records. I have like a handful, but not not really too many. But, you know, uh It was kind of like i was like well why would i buy that calvin has it you know Mm -hmm. like i could just tape it like i didn't have that kind of like i need to own it thing it was like oh they have that at chaos like i don't you know i could listen to that anytime i want i don't have to buy it
0: well it's also amazing how musically literate like the punk stuff coming out of olympia after a certain point is because they're all these great records i guess people have access to like you're saying like Being into the Vaseline's, and you know, eventually Sub Pop would reissue that, and we'd all get to, you know, and then obviously Nirvana's covers too, but you know, people would get to appreciate that. But like that was kind of obscure stuff back then, like even shop systems were kind of obscure.
1: Yeah. Well, um, um, Kay distributed the 53rd and a third records. Oh, yeah. Kay, um, he had a distro that, um, they sold to stores. And actually, when we would tour in the Go Team, which was my band with Calvin, um, we would bring, you know, records to sell in addition to our records and tapes and stuff. And um, so we would be destroying the Vaseline, <laughs> you know, we'd just bring them to our shows and people could buy them. You know how kids do that? Like, oh, definitely even, like that punk shows where I have a have
0: lot them. of, I have a lot of K like, I think my tribe eight, seven inch has a K distribution sticker on the back of the poly bag and stuff. So I yeah. got a lot like, you know, K is such a, like, you know, and obviously we have that connection from Toronto with shadowy men later on and i think fifth column two has that connection oh, obviously, sure. too.
1: yeah and- i put on a shadowy men show here and i did such a bad job i did nothing and then they were here They're like oh we have a show i was like oh yeah right okay <laughs> <laughs> but i like like i called everyone up and i was like you guys gotta come to the show and then i forgot i was putting this show on <laughs> but um uh yeah i'm not a good person to have book. i can book my own tour but i'm not good at putting on other people's shows but um yeah, for sure, Gloria, Gloria um, or JB Jones from um, Hyde and Fifth Column was yeah a big influence, and you know that was part of the radio shows. Like we wanted to um, we wanted to play female artists, and we were looking for that. Like I remember, I used to, the first hardcore record I f- think I bought was like Blood on the Rock, which is like Rodney Rodney Binghamheimer's like um, you know compilation of hardcore bands. But um, I had a subscription to Flipside because uh, I found Flipside was easier than Maximum Rock and Roll to like skim really quickly and be like, which bands have girls in them, which is like basically what I was trying to do is like, because they had more pictures, but then you could also go to like Rodney's playlist and he played like a lot of bands with girls in it, like the Pandora's or, you know, Shun and Knife or I don't even know like, mm-hmm. like what the examples are. But. um yeah, so we would play those bands like intentionally on the radio. Like, um, I remember Conflict from Tucson. We had their record and we played that a lot. And then
0: that record rips. That record's awesome.
1: We had the Rex demo that had like the Punk is not an attitude, but all the other songs. I can't remember right now. And then we had like this um, record or a tape from Anti Scrutiny Faction, like ASF from boulder that a was seven a, inch
0: that's a pre-tribe eight band right i think
1: yes leslie from tribe eight was in that band and um we played that and uh you know obviously sin 34 and um sado nation and uh the ruggedy Ans from canada do you know that yes. band? fantastic uh, the, lp the my dolls from houston and meet joy from austin you know there was all these all-girl bands or you know not all girls, but like definitely a lot of that at chaos and we'd try to play it as it was coming out. We had that record um live at the Deaf Club, I think it's called, that had like pink section and um uh, maybe like inflatable boy clams. I can't remember if they're on that. But you know, we had like white pants. We had the white pants record. Like it was we had all this crazy cool stuff out there. And we would just play it and it you know sometimes you'd find something out there that was like this has been here forever but i've never heard anyone play it you know and then you just start playing it it was really fun um because
0: of like you know because you guys knew or because you knew who fifth column were and they were an influence were you aware of the band curse from toronto they were really obscure first wave punk band but i always felt growing up that they had sort of a very similar energy to what you would be doing later on
1: I got that CD in the late 90s when it came out, and mm-hmm. I, I don't remember knowing about it before then. But it, yeah, it definitely some label put out those CDs that like there was a dish Rags and a Curse one. And I think there was maybe one other one like. Vile yeah.
0: tones, other people's music.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't know. I don't think I knew. I knew about the dish Rags, but I don't think I knew. The Young Canadians was a big band that we played on the radio, too, but uh, we want We like to play that song Hawaii, but the you had to do the disclaimer of, like, you know, foul language or whatever.
0: Art <laughs> um, Bergman, yeah. that's like, he's a poet laureate now in Canada. I, I don't know too
1: much about that scene. I just remember that single, like, because, you know, it's like about, it's about the rainy weather and you want to go somewhere sunny. It was like, it was a big anthem here. We played Flipper. um of course yeah all that kind of stuff the calamities from france we played that band and the pandoras red cross desperate teenage love dolls soundtrack there was just like a lot of great records
0: did you you brought them up earlier but poison idea when was the first time you saw them
1: you know this is interesting because like like i said like with uh beyond possession where i had like forgotten anything about them i don't know if i've just forgotten that i've seen poison idea or what but like I was going through these five, so I was like Poison Idea played this show I was definitely at this show Poison Idea played this show I was definitely at this show Poison Idea was at this show I was definitely at this show but I remember even like in the 90s and like being at like maybe we were opening for Sonic Youth or something and like one of the guys from Poison Idea was outside and came to get Thirst and it was like uh, blah 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 from Poison Idea I think it was Pig or something like that is here like do you want can he come in and Thirst was like oh yeah sure and like we we're talking to him and I was like I have no recollection of ever seeing this band. I was like, they must have only played like bars or something, but it's not true. They played all these shows that I was at, and I just do not remember. And I'm <laughs> like, and I in my head, I was like, I was like, that's like kind of like that Portland scene that's like satiricon it's like over 21, and like it's just kind of like biker punk or something. Like it just wasn't my scene. Like, and I didn't know about it. And it came up recently, like in 2020, actually, where like I Bikini Kill was practicing in um, Portland and Kathleen's from there and we were talking and she's like yeah well you know remember that time I were like oh she was we're talking about the satiricon and she was saying that she used to go there and I was like did you have a fake ID because it was over 21 she's like it wasn't and I and I was like it was so we like looked it up and it was there was a short time when it was all ages and I was like I didn't know that and she's like I fucking told you like I was going there when I was a teenager and I was just like (laughs) I just thought you had a fake ID or something. And then she's like, do you remember like when I went on tour with poison idea? And I was like, no, what? <laughs> she was like, yeah, I went on tour with fits of depression and and they went on tour with poison idea. And I went on you know, and took all these pictures and I was just like, you are full of surprises. Like, I was just like, no, I don't remember that. And I was like, I don't even remember. Cause I think of, you know, like, like it's not that she doesn't know about punk. Like when I met her, she had a shaved head and like, you know, definitely was in the punk scene it was that whole myth where like i'm the punk and she's you know the artist that's just not true but um i do think you know i was just surprised i was like
0: that's pretty capital p
1: punk but then when i was like yeah i was looking at this i was like i've definitely i so i don't know i don't know what's what it is about things that connect with you or don't at certain ages i mean maybe they just seemed like weird adults that were drunk and i didn't care you know i kind of had like a Like I I went through like a lot of phases where I was like, I'm straight edge now, or I'm, you know, into positive, like I really love seven seconds, like better youth organization, you know, and all the records that they put out and I would mail order them and I'd mail order the discord stuff. And I liked melodic hardcore and I like melodic punk, you know, like the Avengers is classic example of what I liked or like DOA or something like that, you know. And that kind of scary, like brutal, kind of metal influence, like music, it didn't always connect with me. But like, I mean, I, I don't know what I was thinking. Like, I Poison Idea are clearly great. Like, I don't know, I did, it, I, I missed that, I guess.
0: Maybe because do they? They also had weird beef the whole way through with DC and Discord.
1: They never played Olympia. That I, I'm not going to say never because I thought that they. I didn't know that I'd seen them in Tacoma or. Gorilla Gardens or whatever but there was also that whole era of like after the Tropicana I was pretty cynical and burned out on a lot of hardcore like I remember just being like seeing this dehumanizers all the time and like no offense to people who like the dehumanizers or whatever but like how many times can you see this and I and I you know and I'm when Bikini bikini first started like that was 1990 and I had this thing where I was just like are you fucking kidding me there's still kids in hardcore bands like why like, are we going to do this forever? You know what I mean? And just being like scratching my head, like, and now as we know, we are going to do it forever. And it's not necessarily bad, right. It's especially it's more, it's more inclusive, but like, it just, it's triggering sometimes when I see it coming back. Cause I'm like, even when sex Fed came back, I was like, Oh my God, it's like riot girl never happened. It's like, it's like there's never been a whole scene that was, you know, women on all the bills or, you know, whatever it's like, do we have to struggle every time to like get, you know, and it's not, I do want to recognize all the women who are involved in hardcore, like, including myself, like as an active creator and participant in the punk scene, then, you know, I don't want to perpetuate that idea that women weren't around or girls weren't around in hardcore, like we were there, you know, we were there the whole time. But at Mm -hmm. the same time, it was very different. Um, it was very different it's different now it's very different now it's not as male dominated and you know when i see it coming back sometimes i get like i don't know just like pissed off or something that... um so, but, I mean, okay, you know, but oh no it's okay i just wanted to get to the point where like yeah so like in the early 90s like i wrote the song like that was kind of like an anti hardcore song in bikini kill and it was directed towards like the kids that grew up to be in an, an unwound and stuff basically and i was just like dude no no more, no more of this, you know, you got to find something more interesting to do with your life, (laughs) like, and, uh, and then, but then, like, a couple years later, just 94, I was, like, making an issue of Jigsaw, and it was, like, you know, during the, like, after the corporate takeover of alternative music and stuff, and I'm, like, sitting there writing about Born Against, and I'm sitting there writing about Gravity Records, and I'm sitting there, like, interviewing Tony Joy and all the shit and I like I got fucking back into it like I was into it like not even like in the and all those bands are guys too you know but I, I can tell you this that I think what got what brought me back to hardcore that time was the drumming of Brooks Headley who I think is like one of the most incredible drummers in the history of punk music and mm-hmm. um, definitely one of my favorite hardcore drummers like to see him playing Born Against so and see him play in UOA And like, you know, then later, like Wrangler Brutes and Skull Control and all of the bands that he was in, like, he's just incredible. He's incredible. So, you know, I think it's the drumming that always gets me, really.
0: I think it's also fascinating to kind of look at, you know, different periods in hardcore, like the 85 period. And I think it happens a little bit less later in the Pacific Northwest, but like seems like such a drop off point where people just got bored with the form or the way the form was going
1: and um, all the rules too of like what's punk and what's not punk yeah. and i feel like like as much as i i'd love to say i love i love so much about maximum rock and roll it always turned me crazy to you because it's like they're always like this is what punk is and this is only what punk is and anything outside of that is not punk and it was just like are you kidding me like you're not going to you're not going to review the Joey Cassio single because it's a synthesizer like Joey Cassio is a punk band, you know, yeah. or whatever, you know, like even in the, like 2007, I was getting annoyed at them. But like uh, that rigid sort of rules of like what's punk and what's not punk. I just I, did, I don't like that aspect of part four. Well,
0: I love it because I think we all, you know, it's like it's like I guess Christian people and Jesus in a way that we all have different <laughs> relationships to this word right like and one person's definition is not going to be the same as another person's definition and they're all valid because you know they're but but at the same time like I find it yeah like I find it's it's interesting at different points where I could see why people got bored like you know what were the bands that these uh kids that were into the Boston music what bands were they kind of gravitating towards locally was it dehumanizers oh, or or AQOA um, or whatever they were called or they
1: would just they would just go to any of the of the shows that were kind of generic you know <laughs> i'm saying generic um as a negative just sort of like if it was like if it was like a guy's like kind of like thrashy band you know yes. but you know everyone would come to those like and I was in the skateboarding, so I loved, J- I loved JFA. I remember my parents like um, took me on vacation, and I was like, we have to come back in time for this show. And my dad was the whole vacation. He was like, we might make it back, but we might not. And You need to be prepared to like maybe miss the show. And I was just like, the entire time, just put my Walkman <laughs> on it, like listening to the new Dag Nasty record the entire time. I was like, I hate my dad. I hate my dad. I hate my dad. Not whenever I hear like... Can I say by or whatever is that was called a diagnostic yeah. record? I just go back into the like, oh my dad's and then you know, we got there in time for JFA. And then like someone fucking broke the window of the Tropicana and they only play like eight songs. But that cover of like the um of the JFA live album was taken right outside the Tropicana. So like, you know, when you're talking about the record store in Olympia, like Phantom City that the Judd from Sexvid did, like that's where that photo is taken. So I don't know. There's like all that stuff you remember in your head. Well,
0: it's interesting with Sex Fit because I know you're saying like it's like Riot Girl never happened, but they were 100% an elf growth of Riot Girl. Like Judd managing the gossip beforehand sue obviously being a fan of this stuff you know i
1: mean yes 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 i i know and and they're not the enemy you know but like then when gag came around i was like the same i was like oh my god like another another and these bands are great like gag are great and i you know i love adam from gag or whatever afg as he's affectionately known um but um and judd was hilarious and stuff but like yeah it's just it's triggering i guess you know Mm -hmm. you want it to be you want things to move on um
0: it also that milk music and gun outfit kind of wave afterwards i thought was great too of stuff that was coming out and i
1: really like sun skull too Mm. um you know like Marion hayes's band and then um of course like with olympia like we got fucking vex like and they're they're like one of the best punk bands i have seen in my entire life like you know i really do miss that but you know we go through eras here like right now we have electric chair and um you know they've been around for a while but they didn't break up and they're they're really good mm-hmm. i'm sure there's like a million other bands that i haven't seen because of covid and stuff oh, we have like a band, this funny band called the gobs that are kind of like the spits but you know different <laughs>
0: what what about like uh brotherhood and resolution in those kind of bands we brotherhood was
1: ones. like greg from greg anderson right
0: yeah and nate <laughs> from uh, foo fighters was in the very early lineup
1: oh yeah uh, he was in diddly squat is that right diddly
0: squat absolutely yeah and so galleon's lap
1: galleon's lap so there was a little bit when nation of ulysses came out here the first tour they were playing with some of those bands and some of the girls that um later started riot girl and olympia were part of that straight edge seattle um tacoma uh belfair gig harbor scene uh, i think they ac- oak harbor i don't know the accused are from oak harbor um that's like where donna dresh is from well she she's a navy brett but she was in that she was in the tropicanon scene too she was in an all-girls band called the Borman. oh yeah i want to say the bands that had, were all girls from the Tropican. there was Borman, there were Tacoma Olympia, and then there was uh Rain Shadow, and then there was um Flowers for Funerals. There was a mixed gender. I don't know. There weren't very many, but there were a few. Did
0: did any of these bands record? Like obviously, maybe not records, but even like demos.
1: Um, I think that you you would most likely be able to hear a tape um of any of those bands if they played live on chaos. Mm. And, you know, people would play live on our radio shows, and then we would tape it, and then they would get played. Um, but sometimes they would come out. There's, I feel like the Flowers for Funerals one did come out. They were kind of like a proto-riot girl band. Fright wig we saw a lot. Um right, a band that... in Olympia, but yeah, they were very influential. We saw them in Tacoma and Seattle.
0: Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but they're, they're a band that I, I really have only begin to appreciate the impact of through doing this podcast. Like hugely important band and a band that's like i can't believe there hasn't been like a reissue campaign or some sort of like someone writing a great article about them because like everyone from like yourself to like margaret cho to like the melvins guys like everyone talks about how great this band was
1: uh they were incredible 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 so good and um <laughs> they were really funny too <laughs> yeah and uh, scary they had that kind of horror <laughs> They were like Flipper, but girls, you know, mm-hmm. they were really great, mm-hmm. and they had different lineups too. Um, I remember seeing Husker du a lot in Seattle, and then like one time seeing that Soul Asylum open for Husker du and being like, "Um, you guys, I think Soul Asylum just blew Husker du off the stage," and people were like, "How is that possible?" I was like. I'm telling you, I saw it. And for years I would, I tell that story and people are like, really? Soul Asylum? I was like, anyone who was at that show, I think it was like, maybe Sound Gardens first show too, maybe. I think it he was gonna be he played twice that day or something. And one of them was with, uh, it was at Gorilla Gardens. One of them was with Soul Asylum and it was incredible. I don't know if, if anyone has said that on your podcast, but Ooh, I do he, remember like 85 or something. They're incredible.
0: Yeah, actually, uh, Sarush, uh, Alvi, who started Vice uh talked about how they were one of the greatest bands he ever saw in his life and and they were actually his neighbors for a while dave perner
1: (laughs) they could sing too which is like you know like really sing and be that loud like that's hard to do
0: yeah and and it's got like i don't know it's just got like when you see those bands that just have that kind of thing where you're like you've got that pop star quality to it i could see why you'd be like oh this band's gonna get somewhere with this thing
1: yeah and you know like a lot of the opinions i have like like people who are record collectors later are like really that's like the band that was great i was like yeah like the screaming trees i will say right now probably the best band that i've ever seen in my life like they're <laughs> in their first two shows like i'm like i don't know like what is better than that you know and and some of that stuff it just sticks in your head like it was like seeing the stooges or something it was like this band's never played a show before and this is how good they are. Like it's mind blowing, you know,
0: was the music kind of like, like the stuff that would come out on SST early on, or like, what was the vibe of the stuff they were doing back then was like, were they more of a punk band or more Stooges kind of vibed?
1: It was more sixties psychedelic, but um, you know, kind of garagey, like sixties style, but with the fer- ferocity of like a Stooges kind of all out, just going insane like gary lee connor went insane like he was he was like all of a sudden he was like pete townsend you know <laughs> and i was like we were watching the who or something and you know the who are like were my first favorite band and stuff and yeah. so yeah it was incredible they, the drummer was great the singer was great they went apeshit they were just they just it was just a wall of sound and it was you know it was before the before the sst record but not that long before
0: well that's what i love about you know your taste in music is because like it you know i talked to other people in seattle like particularly people that are more from that brotherhood scene and they they didn't mess with a lot of that more rock kind of stuff but like you seem to be you know uh i guess what is a catholic enough in your taste that you like all this <laughs> kind of stuff that's like that i love that it all fits under the punk umbrella to me too but like were there other people that would be going to say like one of these more hardcore shows later on i mean like Dillion's, galleon's lap dilly squat kind of era type shows that were also going to these sort of more grunge shows like was there a lot of crossover between these like little micro scenes
1: um i'm gonna say like that the crossover would have been the riot girl bands or what are now Mm -hmm. called the Riot girl bands like we would play at party hall with some of those bands because we knew them through, I mean, I think Nation of Ulysses came out in 1990 or something, and I had met those guys on Go Team Tour, like I'd met several of them, and we were pen pals, and, and you know, I'd met Fugazi when they were out here and stuff, so um, knew about Nation of Ulysses, completely obsessed with them, and when they came out here, they played with, I don't know, I, I feel like I saw Brotherhood and Galleon's lip at playing with Nation of Ulysses, and then we played some of those shows the next summer they came out, I don't know, maybe at the party hall. And, you know, like, I remember the guys from Galleon's Let, like this guy, I think Lenny was their guitar player. He was screening rights of spring shirts. And um, that's when I had my fanzine Jigsaw and I was really still, I was still writing about, you know, DC hardcore. And even in 1989 and 1990, uh, you know, like I was still writing about records that came out, like, super because i was that into it you know yeah um i really loved that scene and you know of course faith void and all that shit too um bad brains was like in my opinion probably the best hardcore band um i mean i don't i don't know who's who was better than that (laughs) but you know they're from dc but obviously also uh existed in the new york era
0: was there Like, uh, because, like, I find Bikini Kill winds up being this band that does connect a lot of these sort of, like, really disparate worlds. Like, you're playing shows with Rancid at the same time that you're on an Ebullition Records comp, at the same time there's this connection of Born Against, you know. It just feels like, like you're saying, like, you're this band that, like, obviously bursts this incredible revolution scene (laughs) in your wake, but also at the same time is part of, like, every little subsect of punk pre green day kind of exploding and everything kind of, I guess, changing again.
1: Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we did all kinds of stuff. That's true. I remember, um, one of the first, uh, first places we played was Gilman, you know, on the first, the first times we left Olympia anyways, is what I'm saying on Bikini Kill Tour. And like, yeah, I remember immediately just connecting with like blacks and, um, you know jack acid and tribe eight. and i was just like oh man punk is still really happening here you know <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like in the in the way that i can relate to you know well,
0: that became like the all ages capital of punk it feels like in the ninety, like san francisco you know with the gilman there and with all these distribution labels there and just all these once again little scenes on top of each other like it really did feel like so much energy coming out of that place like that's where i wanted to move when i was growing up
1: yeah and i guess probably because i i'm such a like a a staunch all ages person like i mean even now like i i'm in a band that plays bars but it's not my band i'm just the drummer but like you know if if it's like i if i'm in a band like we try to play all ages shows Mm. As a matter of principle, because, you know, I don't I don't believe it's right to discriminate on the basis of age. I don't believe that my life would have been the same if bands would have like I'm still mad at Dinosaur Junior for not playing all ages, you know, in Olympia or in the Northwest. Like I could never go see them. Um, I mean, I I actually saw them like just recently because I was still mad. (laughs) You know, I don't even really I try not to like obviously I go to bar shows now, but like I try not I kind of try not to like I. So like that might be the connection is like, you know, we were looking for all ages shows. Like when I was booking the Bikini Kill tours, I, I booked most of them, not all of them, but, you know, and obviously we were a collective so that other people in the band helped and stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we would meet people who were playing all ages shows. So Nation of Ulysses, you know, Fugazi, uh, Born Against... Gilman people, um, Jabberjaw in LA, they had that going on, but you know, like, uh, and what you're you're saying, like in Seattle, like we didn't play bars and Bikini Kill didn't play bars in Seattle. We played Velvet Elvis, we played Party Hall, we played OK Hotel, you know, we didn't play like the Central Tavern or anything.
0: Experiencing Bikini Kill kind of in real time as a fan up here, um, it felt like it was important right away you know to people obviously but also just in like the history of music like it was it was almost immediate like these were like sort of essential records to get as much as there was I'm sure you also experienced there was like a backlash to it from a lot of people as well but did you get a sense of that about how important this thing was almost immediately from getting out there and playing like did it feel different than playing in go team and velvet and velvet sidewalk and all these type of things?
1: uh oh definitely um but you know i think (laughs) like it was possibly self-importance like we actually took what we were doing very seriously you know which you know i i I have a sense of humor about it now and kathleen's actually like very funny person but um
0: i bought a cameo from her for my wife's uh for mother's day for my wife and it was very funny
1: yeah, she's hilarious. But, um, you know, it's not to say that we didn't have a sense of humor, yeah. but we did, we did take what we were doing very seriously. And, you know, it was the entire point of all of our lives. It wasn't like we were halfway doing a band. We were like, no, this is our band. We're the best bands that ever existed or ever going to exist. You know, like it was just very much like this is the most important thing. Everyone pay attention to it. And that rubs people the wrong way or whatever. But it's like, I'm sorry, like, if you're in The Clash or you're in The Ramones or you're in, you know, whatever, Poison Idea or The Crucifix or something, like, butthole surfers, like, it's not your side thing. It's your life. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And that's how we were about it. So I think that we took it seriously, you know, and then, you know, other people did or did not. But, yeah, we certainly did.
0: You kind of have to to make impact. Like, you're like Black Flag thought they were the greatest band in the world like there's a you need to kind of like feel that you're going to do something important to kind of give it meaning in the beginning you know at least slog through it
1: but like to answer your question too like you know i've been in a lot of bands and i i don't feel that way about the other bands you know i didn't Mm -hmm. everything was lining up everything was lining up like musically aesthetically in terms of like the time and place like the people um yeah, it just felt it felt like it was one of those things. It was like, like I was in school, and it was like, oh, okay, yeah, of course I'm quitting school. Like, yeah, okay, of course I'm gonna move where you guys are moving. You know, it was like, oh yeah, boyfriend, who cares? You know what I mean? It was just like, no, this is my life, job. I don't know. Like, I'll get money somehow.
0: Well, yeah, there because there's like a
1: future. Uh, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of still like that. You know, we're doing the band again. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm all
0: in>. <laughs> <laughs> but it it does, uh, you know, and obviously the, the impact that you have is such that there is, it, you know, it changes everything, you know, like bands, you know, even bands that rejected you were changed in your wake, you know, like the, 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 it was like a monumental shift. Like you're saying, like the clash, you know, like there's there certain bands that just nothing's the same afterwards. And Bikini Kill is one of those bands that like punk is, you know like you're saying like at times it might feel like bikini kill never happened or riot girl never happened but at the same time like it has and it, it everything is just never going to be what it was if it hadn't happened
1: well i i appreciate that um thank you um i i think that's probably true i mean it's hard to be objective right um it feel, but sometimes you just feel like you know like it's not it's not all about us it's like we were maybe the most celebrated of all these things or the most like you know because riot girl gets a lot of um historical credit and a lot of a lot of criticism well-deserved criticism as well um but you know there's been feminist punk has existed for as long as punk has existed women have been around from the beginning like alice bagg was there you know lorna doom was there you know uh there patty smith um debbie harry um and, and the list goes on and on like from the birth of rock and roll right you know so it's it's not it's it's not just one band it's it's been it was going to happen anyway you know
0: it was but i think it's i don't know it's just something about the way it was presented and maybe it's because there was because like you're saying there was feminist punk like uh, China's uh, Kaminas from Seattle, like they were a feminist punk band, and they're part of the first wave. But I don't know. It's just like the the way it was presented, the the unapologetic nature of it, like the manifestos. Like it just feels like, like you look at what came out of '90s punk rock that's actually important and actually had an impact on a political level, and it's like Riot Girl and and some of the stuff going on in D.C. and then some of that hardline stuff, maybe. <laughs> from the negative side of things but like really it was it changed punk forever and i wanted to ask you about this because like obviously men having power taken away from them will always be threatening to men um but at the same time like the the level of vitriol that you kind of experienced i guess from the punk scene was that shocking to you at a certain level when that when that started coming oh yeah for sure
1: for sure for sure you know i was it it was really fucking weird, you know, I was like, I remember one time, like the first time we went to L.A., which was like in late 92 was right when our first EP came out. But we'd been a band for a couple of years and lived in D.C. for a year and played around New York and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And like we got to L.A. and I don't know, we were tired. It was a dramatic tour. And um, somebody from Flipside was there and they wanted to interview us. And someone was like, oh, do you want to do this interview? And we're just like, no, not you know, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, maybe tomorrow or whatever and so we didn't do this thing someone was there to interview us we didn't I don't know maybe it was planned I don't remember we just did we just didn't do it and then like flip side came out and it was like it told us it said Bikini Hill fuck you and it said fuck you like 27 times like I remember counting like how many times they said fuck you and I was like this is a magazine that I subscribed to for like seven years or something (laughs) you know I read it faithfully I was like oh of course I want to be in this magazine you know like and I was like, you know, like, I don't know, not to bring up Courtney Love, but like she was on the cover of, of Flipside, you know, and they they had like a lot of women on the cover of Flipside. And I was like, so what is it about us that just pisses these people off, you know? And then also like there's a little bit later, like NoFX had a song like that where they were like, fuck you, Kathleen Hannah or something like that. And that whole thing was so weird, too, because I was like, the only thing that I can think of that that might have been about is like, we played a show with NoFX in Hawaii, and this was pretty late, like 95 or something, I don't know when that song came out, but like, we played a show in Hawaii, it was our second time we'd been to Hawaii, and we were kind of big in Hawaii, and like, we played one show headlining, and then the other show, we were opening for NoFX, which, I mean, I didn't, I kind of remember them, but I didn't remember that much about them, so we played this big show, and, you know, like, this is how we did things. And um, so we're like, well, this, okay, this show costs $15. If we would, or, you know, something like that. It's like, if we were going to headline, you know, we could probably draw this many people and people would pay this much. So like, basically like I think I don't remember what they want maybe they were going to give us like a small amount of money at the end of the night or something and I was like so here's your guarantee is like $250 or something like that I was like oh we should probably make a thousand or you know 1500 like we would just ask for what we thought we were worth so we like hung out with no all night Me and Kathleen had this plan we we're gonna like make friends with them and then like go to talk to them about the split and be like you know what do you think about giving us like seven hundred more dollars? Something you know, like some yeah, so ridiculous amount. Yeah. Like we think we deserve, you know, three times as much as what. And then you know, they were business people, so they're like, "Fuck you," you know, like no, like you agreed to play the show for three hundred dollars or blah 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 blah. Or, like, well, we did because we didn't really have a choice because like we happened to be here on this day and you guys were already playing, so you know, two shows just got combined and like, whatever. Like they gave us the money, they did. They yeah. gave us the money that we asked for, but I guess it pissed them off because then they wrote this "fuck you" song to us. And you know, it kind of really just—I have this picture of like Kathleen and No doing like a human pyramid, like they're—they're they're just we were goofing around or whatever. Yeah. yeah. But maybe they knew that we were like, oh, just just being nice to him because we're gonna ask for more money. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that's how to do shit, like, especially if you feel like. I mean they can say no, you know, and then maybe we would have read a fuck you no effects song, but like probably not. We probably just would have been like, yeah, well, we tried.
0: Well, I I just interviewed Chris Estrada, who's a very funny comedian from LA who does the show This Fool that's uh, on Hulu now, very funny TV show, but uh total hardcore kid and he said that when that No Effects record came out, he looked at it as a, a them t- calling fans to pick a side and he said, "Well, fuck you No Effects. I like Bikini Kill and Got it in no effect. So it backfired on a lot of people. I, I
1: think, mean, it was a, you know, they weren't really my thing to be honest and we probably weren't their thing, but you know, I think there's you know, whatever, there doesn't need to be like a big war about it.
0: No. And also, if you want to hear amazing conversations, ask fat Mike about the Melvins and ask buzz <laughs> about no effects. Cause they have no love loss for each other at all.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, I've known buzz since I was 14 years old and, uh he has you know he has he has his opinions and I don't always share them but I do have ultimate respect for Buzz Osborne like especially just like the way he um does his band you know like and and I don't even I can't even think of like what thing I'm saying that I don't share his opinion we probably disagree on the mentors let's just say that (laughs) you know (laughs) like we probably have musical differences But we also like a lot of the same shit. And Buzz is so great because like the Melvins would always like get put in Olympia with these like heavy bands. And at one point he's like, Hey, uh, do you think the go team would want to open for us? Or do you think Bratmobile would want to open for us? You know, he wants, he doesn't want to play with bands that sound just like him. He's, you know, he's into like weird cool shit that people are doing. Like he let me um, play like a song of me just singing and playing guitar, like in front of, (laughs) <laughs> right opening for the melvins during like the grunge era when everyone just wanted like to see tad you know and i'm just like la 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 la, la. and he's like hey that was great you they, know, also,
0: like... they also do a bikini kill cover now right so well,
1: they do, yeah and um you know and Bess has been very supportive of the reunion too yeah he's he i mean those guys are great and dale is like probably the best drummer ever right the
0: most punk ever <laughs> um i have talked to you forever and <laughs> unfortunately i have to call into a radio show now myself um toby i would continue this for another hour and a half two hours will you please come back on the show anytime oh,
1: yeah, sure. i probably forget like 20 things that i was gonna say but um well yeah. i
0: still have sheets of questions left <laughs> to ask you because this has been it's lived up to all my expectations and exceeded them so thank you for doing this and thank you for everything you've done
1: oh yeah you too I, i've enjoyed listening to the show. <laughs>
0: All right, we had to pause for a second there because I had to call not just any radio show; I had to call the best show, with of course Tom and and John. Shout out to John Worcester, of course, who had a birthday very recently. If you're listening to this episode when it came out, a friend of the show, John Worcester. Uh, and and then we and then we resumed. Toby, thank you for coming back to the show.
1: Oh yeah,
0: I, I realized very quickly after we got off the phone that there were so many more questions I had to ask you about that rather than just put this out as is, I would love to invite you back and you very graciously agreed to do it. So um one thing that happened since we last spoke, though, is I, I fucked up, played two kind of DIY punk shows in Toronto and we played with like a lot of younger bands Um and watching these bands, it kind of struck me at how, how just kind of like broad the tastes everyone has now is like, these were kids that like one second would be, moshing to a chromex cover uh, another second you know uh it, it'd be a nirvana song another second be like you know some crazy obscure japanese hardcore cover it, it really felt like there's just sort of like this sort of uh, breaking down of walls
1: what, uh, what do you think why do you think that is
0: i don't know i just wondered like actually that's kind of one i wanted to ask you because i feel like I, I feel like it started with my generation at least in the access to information in terms of finding about a punk all over the world but i think i was wondering about yourself like where did that impetus to kind of like find out about punk from different places come from because there's a lot of people that were just kind of content to look at their local scene or at least the immediate scenes around them but it seemed like you were you know one of those rare people that was like looking for punk from every place like were you aware of international punk early on or what, what point did you become aware of
2: that stuff
1: uh not as much i mean you know like i said i think before that we were uh my friend Donna Dresch and I were like writing to GB Jones and that's Toronto, right?
0: Yeah, that's Toronto. Absolutely.
1: I I thought so. I it's hard to remember that far back. Um, (laughs) So like, you know, we knew there was bands up there. I knew about like, that band. I think I mentioned before the Ruggedy Ann's they're from Canada. Mm -hmm.
0: right? Yeah, they I think they're from Vancouver, or Calgary, maybe maybe Vancouver.
1: I don't think they're Vancouver.
0: It must be Calgary then.
1: I would probably have remembered that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so some Canadian bands, I don't know, probably, I think there are some like compilations like that Maximum Rock and Roll put out and, uh, you know, like I knew about Raw Power, I think I saw Raw Power, but like, I can't be totally sure because it's one of those like, Melvin's shows at Gorilla Gardens where you're like, I, I don't know, like, I feel like I went to everyone, <laughs> but there's no way that I went to everyone because I was I couldn't even drive yet, you know, so it all was just like a blur. The Calamities, I definitely knew about in Shonen Knife, and that was that uh, those bands were from listening to Calvin's radio show. I heard them, and also like Kay put out the first Shonen Knife tape, right? Be Happening had gone to Japan, so we knew like a few bands. There's a band called Kaya, I think, from Japan. There was like an all girl kind of hardcore punk band,
0: yeah. There's like that's a that comes from Japan. Um, are like there's, a, there's such an incredible history of Japanese punk, like that's one place that I've always been, you know, just amazed at how much stuff I don't know about. came out of from there
1: yeah i I mean i'm definitely no expert i think the the kids who uh got into hardcore you know uh, 80s hardcore like after the internet and stuff uh you know and ebay and all that i think it was it's it got really obsessive or you know maybe even just like the uh what are those compilations called
0: (laughs) killed by death death,
1: yeah yeah all those you know just like all that stuff like i kind of every time i like do, i was working at Cal rock stars doing mail order and every time i'd like realize there's another one i was like oh my god this is going to go on forever <laughs> so, so many
0: i think that's one of the really fascinating things about punk is cuz it feels like right out of the gate there was this real navel gazing going on with it where like this real sort of self obsession with what punk itself was and i think you know that kill by death thing is ultimately the peak of that sort of need to be archaeologists within your own genre
1: yeah and i i think i talked about this in another interview um not the one i did with you but the uh yeah like at some at some point i remember in the 80s like getting into like 60s garage bands and then having this thought you know when i was getting on like the pebbles and the nuggets compilations and going to thrift stores and like digging through like the cultural trash that was like very affordable at the time you know like seeds records or whatever and uh the music machine or whatever that stuff was. And then being like, I wonder if in the future there's going to be like a kids that will like obsess over like garage band, you know, like hardcore bands like that are happening in people's like garages and living rooms and stuff. And I was like, no, probably not because nobody's making any recordings and no one would probably ever know about these bands. But it definitely happened. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I I do. When it started happening, I was like, oh, God, this is really weird. (laughs) That's is like what getting old is about, but it's also who could have predicted, you know, like the internet and the diffusion of all of the information and all that kind of stuff.
0: Well, I think even more incredible is who would have predicted back then that this stuff would not only be the realm of record collectors, but also just the realm of mainstream music history. Like the like the stuff that was coming out of the scene, you know, stuff you're doing included, obviously, is is changing like all music history in its way, like these garage bands on Nuggets and Pebbles, they're just ripples in music, you know?
1: I mean, that's one way of looking at it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's really it, like when people ask me about like Riot Girl stuff or whatever, like it's very hard for me to even like understand it because I still feel like even just like the relationship between like the band Bikini Kill and then like what is called Riot Girl, which now all of that is sort of conflated into one thing, you know? But um, at one time, they were kind of separate, but like, uh, like, it's even hard for me to understand or to talk about, like, when someone asked me to do an interview about that, like, it's really hard for me to speak about it, like, I just have to speak to my experience, and my experience is so different than what people would think my experience and opinions are, but then I, like, I kind of end up, like, arguing a little bit, or, you know, like, being a little, like, well, it wasn't actually really, well, that's not how we think of it, and then people are like, well, that's how it was, I'm like, not really, you know, but like, like that, even that is hard to talk about, but then like also like, um, how that has gone on and continued and then like been filtered through the media and then traveled around the world and everything like and people are like, well, what about that? I'm like, I don't even know about that. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, I guess there's today, even like right girl kind of influence on in Mexico city and South America. And, you know, in definitely there was in Indonesia in like the late nineties, early 2000s, you know, just stuff like that where you're just like, I really can't speak to any of that. I have no idea like what that even means really, you know.
0: Well, I was uh in Japan a couple of years ago making this TV show about wrestling and I saw a band in Japan do a bikini kill cover. Um, you know, like it is something that yeah, went around the world. You know, and that's punk has always been kind of international, but I think like you're saying the reverberations of this thing where it you know, comes from <laughs> kind of from your the pages of what you're doing and and eventually becomes something that the whole world takes hold of much in the same way with punk or straight edge, like all these things eventually have very little relationship or, or maybe they do have a relationship to the people that created them.
1: Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I think the most similar thing is probably like straight edge or emo or something, because it's like, it's still punk, but it's like, you know, within punk, it's like another sort of like subculture or whatever. And yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, I'm sure like everyone knows, like if you talk to Ian Mackay, like he's not, he doesn't have, you know, he doesn't have the same perspective that like a teenager would have on straight edge. But you're Ian McKay, like you know that kind of thing.
2: Well,
0: and I think that's the other thing that happens in punk is you eventually just put these people up on pedestals. You know, these people become deified in a way because they are providing you with a moral code or a way of understanding the world, in the way religion has for other people and other yeah.
1: Places. So you have that kind of orthodoxy element to it, and you have that kind of like you know, like, if you're, it's kind of like, for Right Girl in particular, I think it was kind of a problem in a way, because like, Kathleen is so incredibly charismatic, and she's such a powerful performer, you know, and she's kind of a natural communicator. But at the same time, like, she wasn't trying to be like, everyone do what I say, and, you know, dress like me and do things exactly like, you know, I'm doing them, like, that wasn't the idea at all, you know, it was like, no, people should, like, girls should create their own their own you know culture of whatever that is like however they want to do it wherever they live it wasn't like oh yeah just do a band just and sound exactly like Kathleen or you know whatever so that that definitely is a part of why it was so strange (laughs) like you know and then of course she became like such a huge um well-known you know feminist artist like to go on to do all the other stuff you know
0: well I think yourself too right like people take things that you said and things that you wrote and it's you know, stuff that you're writing as as like a teenager in some cases, and it's, and people take it like uh, gospel, but fortunately, it's nothing that I don't think you have to regret, but it, I it mean, is.
1: I really honestly try not to think about it too hard. <laughs> 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 it, that's one thing that like really is true is like what people, okay, so now like, I mean, I'm 53 years old, so, you know, you're an adult, we're adults, and we're still doing this punk thing, like, you know, one of the the framing devices for talking about stuff like Riot Girl is like, you have to understand like these are very young people like you know like this was youth culture and you know in talking to you about this stuff it was interesting because i think like you know obviously like my parents lived through like the birth of rock and roll then like that whole sonics you know northwest garage scene then you know uh, the hippie thing, right? Rock festivals and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And then we did back to the land thing, and then punk. And they were still like, you know, barely thirty, right? You know, and all that stuff happened in their life. And so then, like, I'm a teenager, and I start experiencing like hardcore punk. And so it's like when we we started our, you know, the next thing, you know, like you're like, okay, now that's over. Now we're gonna go try to do something else, or like indie pop, or you know, whatever the K Records scene was, or something like that, or, you know, and then like what later became Riot Girl or whatever, it's like, you know, you just kept thinking that it was going to evolve, but also with each generation, like, you know, um, there would be new things like it was, it was very much like, oh, yeah, let's just start a new, the next thing like, um, but now it's, it doesn't feel to me like it in that same way that that those, you know, music subcultures are so tied to like, young people in the same way. Um, Because like all the hardcore kids, like, you know, there are just like kids that skateboarded and, you know, most people were under 21, you know, some of the bands were in their 20s. It was like weird if someone was older than that. Right. You know, and it was even in Bikini Kill, it was like that. It was like, oh, my God, we're 25. Like, we're still doing this. You know, like, this is weird because our fans were like or whatever fans like the the kids who are coming to see us because we always did all ages they were literally getting younger each year. You know, they started out where we were kind of maybe the same age. And like, we started getting older, and they started getting younger. I was like, there's like 12 year olds here, you know, and it was like, now I'm gonna be 27. (laughs) Like, Can you be in a band when you're like 27 years old? (laughs) Like a punk band, you know, was just didn't make no sense to me. Like, but yeah, so you have to really realize these are very young people. So it's like, If, you know, Kathleen was probably the, you know, she's, well, we're about the same, we're like a year apart. So I want, I'll say Kathleen and Kathy and I were like, probably like the oldest people. Alison Wolf is our age. And then like the other people in Brownville, a little bit younger. And then Heavens to Betsy were in like high school. And then, you know, a lot of the kids who are making zines and like coming to the shows and stuff were teenagers. And it was like, you know, to get real about it, like, because there was like a lot of stuff about like, You know sexual violence and child abuse and that kind of thing like this was there was no separation like this stuff was happening to these kids you know like at home right Mm -hmm. so it's very much like a survivor kind of like network at the you know while it was happening
0: yeah it it's it was it's one of those things that becomes kind of bigger than punk rock in a way like i think at this point for a lot of people riot girl is far bigger than just a punk rock thing
1: um i mean you know because they have you have like feminism then you have punk and then and also like that you know to be very clear like um there's a legacy like as we talked about before of feminism within punk but just like anything like punk can be racist and it can be anti-racist punk can be feminist and it can be anti-feminist you know and it's the same as true for rock and roll right so you have a lot of that stuff going on all the time, like even now.
0: Yeah, no, I think there's, but I think there's like, a, you know, like looking behind you, I see like a Pussy Riot poster, and I think yeah. that's an example of where this thing has become uh, kind of like bigger than just a music thing, like, and it's become, oh, for sure, like you know what I'm saying, like it's like a way for young people. To take control of their politics i think well like you know once again looking as an outsider at it
1: yeah you know and some people didn't survive you know there was kids that like tried to run away got on drugs had to go back home and ended up you know like not making it at a very you know very young ages like like our friend molly 16 you know she just ended up back in a bad situation and she ended her life at 19 and she's like in the like all the riot girl pictures and stuff, you know,
0: so, I'm it's, so it's, sorry. Like
1: very, it's like a very real thing that happened.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you, not to shift gears too you know, harshly, but as you were talking about earlier, how it's part of a continual punk rock. And a couple of years ago, I bought Carolyn from fifth columns, like I'm sure just the remnants of her zine collection uh, oh, nice. from, through a record <laughs> store. And it was amazing finding like letters from Allison tucked into copies of, you know, fanzines and some of your fanzines and finding letters from Kathleen kind of scrawled on the cover of Girl Germs and stuff like it just felt like it it felt like there was sort of this continuation of this work that had been done prior to, but also, you know, once again, through, you know, the band being so great or, or just circumstance or a combination, obviously, of everything, it was brought to like a much larger audience
1: um yeah and and that brings up this whole idea too of like when you put yourself back in that mindset like and you talk about the fanzine network that uh we were a part of like there was that whole queer zine stuff that was going on before Jigsaw that you know my fanzine was very much inspired by and then um so it there's like a whole whole bunch of stuff going on right there you know but there's one thing that I think is interesting is like I don't know if people like today like really realize how much that was just all about like information sharing like it wasn't like we were making fanzines like as an aesthetic exercise like how they are exist now it was like music didn't it didn't get written about or shared, you know, in in hardly any other way except for through the mail and through touring bands and through writing letters, and through, you know, kids making fanzines and writing about them and documenting it. So, I don't know, I think I really, you know, I go to zine fest sometimes, and I'm like, do you have any music fanzines? I walk around to all the tables, and almost always, like, they say no, and I'm like, I know there are music fanzines, but there's, like, you know, less and less, and I think they need to, I think we, as a culture, like, to have a healthy, like, independent music culture, need to be creating that, Um, because, you know, the internet is, is, like, great, but, like, in in a lot of ways, but there's like still it's such a corporate dominated um, regime, you know, like especially with social media. Well,
0: it's interesting to kind of look at it also outside of music fanzines, like looking more at the personal fanzines of the political fanzines as how it kind of pre social media and was like, a, a, like you're saying, like a, a, but in a completely non-corporate way. Because you were just ripping off Kinko's to get those photocopies at the end of the day most of the time anyway. Yeah, or uh,
1: somebody's work or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah. To, to, or, but yeah. To, sh- to share your feelings, to share your ideology, to share your voice. Like in a, pl- in a time when, yeah, like you're saying, these things weren't just aesthetic exercises. These were vital ways to communicate with people.
1: Yeah, and and it was really hard to find out about like part of what we were trying to do with Bikini Kill is like it was really hard to find out about not just like current bands with girls and women in them, but like like I didn't know, like maybe I mentioned this before, I can't remember, but like I didn't know that X-ray specs existed until i was like 20 years old and like to me that's just like baffling now because like as i said i like i knew about the sex puzzle as a child and like my parents had all these records and i read stuff obsessively and you know i was went had been worked at a radio sh- station and like somehow like i think it was when i moved to eugene when i was like 18 calvin gave me some records and i was like what the hell is this one and he's like oh X-ray effects you never you don't know about this one it must have got stolen at chaos or something and i was like and it you know it just like blew my mind I'm like (laughs) this and then the the fact that I didn't know about it I was like like how is this kept a secret and so I I would just like I would just write, write people letters I'm like do you know about this record I will tape it for you you know like that kind of thing like and that's sort of like what we did with each other and with our friends like at first and that was sort of what my fanzine was about like it was only for like a few people like so I could have something to send in the mail and like you know like since I'm a writer, like I, I can like write like a whole fanzine like <laughs> in a letter and I'd be like, well, it maybe be better if I just put it in the fanzine and I could don't have to write the same letter over and over and over again to all these different people or whatever. But, um, you know, I might make like 25 copies and that would be it.
0: Well, two bands I did definitely want to talk to you about that I didn't really get a chance to last time were Bam Bam and the Fastbacks, two incredibly important bands featuring women that seem to just be. Well, less with the fastbacks, more with Bam Bam, but just kind of like local legends for the most
1: part. Well, here's the thing. Um, I didn't know about Bam Bam. I mean, I think like I read about them. And, but it's like I said, you know, I didn't know about Poison. Like, I don't remember seeing Poison Idea either. So mm-hmm. there's like just, just a ton of stuff that you would miss, like, especially if you're young. Um, I don't remember knowing about Bam Bam. And like someone contacted me, like, in the past couple of years, I think it was during quarantine or something. I was like, can you give us a quote about this? And I was like, or can you write the intro to this? And I was like, um, I don't think I'm the person to do that because like <laughs> I just read about this like this year or something, and then you know I remember being like to Donna uh, who I mentioned before Donna Dress she's like one of my best friends growing up I was like do you remember them and She's like no I don't remember them and I was like it's kind of weird right because we mm-hmm. were going up to Seattle and I don't know we just missed it so I don't know that much about that yeah. and and I'm sure there's there's like reasons for that um uh. I don't know like part, part of it could be racism right like of people not including um them in this like kind of punk realm or whatever um in their minds you know kind of have like if there's a girl in a band it almost becomes like less likely to be called a hardcore band <laughs> or something you know like maybe like that just wasn't punk in some people's like white people's minds like i don't know i'm just i'm just guessing so i don't know but um the fastbacks definitely i did i think that was one of the first bands i saw that had uh women in it and i saw them very yeah yeah when i was like 14. um so i did know about that band um there's well, a lot of other bands that from seattle that i try to remember the, m- the names of had women in them that used to play the tropicana i'm not thinking of it right now though
0: well believe me i will i'm sure we'll it'll be jogged at some point in the conversation but yeah. just going back to bam bam for a second it's interesting because It's a band that yeah like once again i would have been you know now hearing the single i'm like i can't believe i didn't know about this thing and it wasn't you know especially in the kill by death era especially in the the grunge freak out everyone's a record collector era i'm surprised it didn't become much more of a talked about single
1: yeah and i don't have it either so i I mean i don't know i i'll have to seek that out and I remember like, I, I read an article about it and I, I immediately like tried to text a bunch of people I was like do you know about this band like is this real like how could we have missed this well,
0: and um, there's, a, there's a story that Kurt Cobain wrote it for him too
1: I don't think that's true I okay. mean I, I, yeah. I, I don't think that's true
0: yeah I, I imagine there's like a lot of legend that gets thrown on top of things when things get discovered as well
1: I mean he didn't even he like went to he told me he went to one Tropicana show I didn't rem- I don't remember him from then and like he's told me he went he got like got a ride with the Melvins or something to go see Black Flag and he got super wasted and passed out and missed Black Flag and then they just like made fun of him the whole you know rest of his life basically. He's like <laughs> I missed that whole scene. <laughs> but, you uh, yeah. know, like Aaron's an hour away, you know, and it's it's hard to get it's hard to get around when you're a kid.
0: Absolutely. And that's the thing, until you're in the Pacific Northwest, I think like, well, certainly speaking as myself as a music fan you think all these things are happening on top of each other, even within Seattle, Seattle's a big city itself. And there were, you know, from now reading a lot more history of it, like understanding there's different regions of the city and different sounds attached to different regions of the city.
1: Yeah. And I don't, I actually also like, you know, maybe this is part of the band thing. Maybe like that was going on during the Tropicana because until the Tropicana closed, I wasn't going to Seattle that much, you know, because mm-hmm. we had too many shows here and it was hard to get rides up there.
0: Was, were you at that show when Guns N' Roses played and I think the Fastbacks played too?
1: I don't know. Like I asked Buzz about that recently. I was like, what do you remember about that night? Like, cause I feel like I was at that show that you played. And then I remember someone telling me that, you know, that Guns N' Roses thing happened the same night. And in my mind, I feel like I was there, but then I was like, I don't know. It's just like, uh, there's this one time like that the Dicks played at the 56th street house in, in Tacoma. And, you know, for a long time, I was like, I think I was at that show. And I was like, I think that was at the show where my, we had this horrible thing happen where like my friend, um, she didn't overdose, but she, she got into some, something and she was very self-destructive and we ended up having, there was some kind of emergency. And I was like, I think that's why I don't really remember the dicks because I think that was the night this other fucked up thing happened. But, you know, when you're a kid, like that's, that. Uh, And you're going to a show and like like black flag or something you know like I remember my friend cut her face open and she should have gone to the hospital but she was like no man I'm gonna like slam dance the black flag or whatever you know and if if I go to the hospital my parents will know that like I'm not standing the night at your house and all this stuff and I'm like what are you gonna tell them she's like I'm gonna tell them that like fell like I we were skating and like I I fell on a mailbox (laughs) I'm like like oh the hospital <laughs> but you know like stuff like that like you would get into these trouble kind of situations and I don't know so I don't think I saw the dicks and I I don't know if I was there the night that Guns and roses play it's like too long ago to you you know what I mean
0: yeah and it's and there's I guess it speaks to how much stuff is happening too and how much yeah. music you're taking in
1: yeah I remember like Dylan you know from earth and slim who, who started kill rock they're in a band called like eights and aces and um uh donna was in this band danger mouse and um so danger mouse played with eights and aces or something and then we met them at gorilla gardens and they would tell us about stuff so maybe they just told us about that but i do remember when guns and roses played like a bunch of people from this one punk house here like it they played uh maybe it was like 86 or 87 they played you know like they were they're already on the radio and stuff like they played a big show and I was like, we're going to see that band. Like we saw it, you know, Gorilla Gardens or whatever. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? Did uh,
0: did, I, did any of the like farts or like 10 minute warning ever play Olympia? Or did you ever see those bands?
1: Not that I, not that I, I don't know. They might have played here that I remember that. Like, I don't know if you know who the Rejectors are. I think I might've mentioned. Absolutely.
0: Them. Split with the accused.
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story. Like the singer from the Rejectors, is a uh, kid named Bruce. Um, he had an apart he lived in an apartment with some students in this neighborhood where uh near my parents' house, like just down the street basically. And I was still delivering like I was the paper girl. So like I'd started going to punk shows and I looked like I was like a, you know, nine or something. <laughs> and like I had to knock on their door and be like, I'm here to collect. And I was like, Oh my God these punk rockers live here or whatever. and then I was just like I found out he was in the rejectors, and I was just like so embarrassed and also they would never pay their bill and I would just be like I'm sorry but you like owe me eight dollars <laughs> like, I was just like <laughs> and then he was like I'm sorry it's my roommate it's not me and I I didn't subscribe we need to cancel this or whatever And I'm just like okay but somebody needs to pay the eight dollars because I've already paid it eight dollars is a lot of money you know? <laughs> so, That was like this awkward thing about me and that singer from the Rejectors, And then finally I got to see his band play and, um, it made it a little more more normal, but he, yeah, he like works at the library. I used to work at the library. So like, I still know that guy, but, um, that was my funny thing of like, yeah, I am really embarrassed that I I'm the paper girl and you're like the cool punk guy or whatever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm the one who paid hundreds of dollars for that seven inch. So I'm the one who should probably be embarrassed. Yeah, I, maybe he
1: should get me a copy. I don't know.
0: Yeah, exactly. That say you owe me eight bucks plus interest. I'll just take a seven inch.
1: But I do know that he was a skateboarder, and like he told me, like kind of recently. I don't know. Kind of recently is like what? Uh, maybe in the past five years. Like, um, he said, or no, Steve Turner from Mud Honey and uh, Green River told me this that like they used to come down to Olympia to skateboard, in, you know the eighties. And I was just like, okay, like I don't remember that And he's like, oh no, like, you know, the skate park in Lacey, which is Lacy is near Olympia. It's like one town over. And I mean, they border each other. It's basically the same town. And I was like, there was an indoor skate park in Lacey. And I lived here then, and I didn't know about it. Like I was just like, this doesn't make any sense to me. And he was like, oh, yeah, everyone used to go to there all the time. this is the only indoor skate park in the Pacific Northwest. So I asked Bruce, like when I, I was at the library one time, I was like, used to know this place and he's like oh yeah oh yeah definitely that's like the first time i ever used to come i came to olympia it was like everyone went there and i was like so i guess like that was maybe one way how kids from seattle and different areas uh around the northwest knew about the you know shows in olympia and i was completely oblivious about that too and we like drove out there and i was like this is just like you know a, a strip mall basically
0: it's fascinating too how like at that point because there is no centralized hub for information uh you could you could miss something like that because it's completely plausible you could completely miss bands happening or whole buildings that have skate parks in them just because if you didn't know the right kid that was there you weren't going to find out about it
1: yeah and there was a ramp in um called the Lacey ramp and like my friend chris barwick's parents backyard. And so I thought everyone was talking about that. And they were like, oh no, not that like crummy like quarter pipe or whatever. Like actually a skate park. And I was just like, I don't know. And then like, (laughs) yeah. So, you know, there there was a skate, a skate ramp in Olympia. It was a really crappy quarter pipe and then a half pipe. And you know, it was only there was only one and it was outside and like they didn't really want you to skate on it I don't know like I didn't I never really got too into into that aspect of skating because I just would use my skateboard to like hang out or like get from show show to the bus or you know whatever I mean I would skate but like not like doing not how like not how skateboarding culture is now where it's like completely based around tricks or whatever and definitely don't didn't learn any vertical skills or whatever but yeah that's another thing is like skating there weren't skate parks around here I mean I Mm -hmm. guess there was (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the larger point is like it's hard to it was hard to find out about we spent a lot of time in the parking garage skating because it was raining out
0: it's interesting with skateboarding too because like you can kind of track the commercialization of it from just people throwing roller skates onto the bottom of boards to the sort of rise of this industry but it's it, it's interesting now how it's obviously still a huge part of punk rock but at one point it was punk rock in and of itself. It feels like, and, and skateboarders who have been on the show have said that as well. So I'm not just talking from yeah. a fat kid that didn't skateboard position.
1: And you know, like one of the things that we would do when we were kids is like try, like in our neighborhood before we knew about really like punk or whatever. Like, if we saw someone with a skateboard that moved into our neighborhood, we're like, that person's from California. They probably know who Black Flag is, and it was always true. You know, it's less like they wore Vans and they had like, like you know. And they wouldn't even they wouldn't even be punk. They would just be like some Jeff Spicoli dudes or something, you know, like Fast Times guys. But like they would um, they would always know about punk. And and so, yeah, I think that that that's my experience is is this, is that that's true. Like skateboarding and punk were like very um, in sync.
0: It, it's It's funny when you look at California, it's almost like the birth of punk as a soundtrack and less of punk as as a lifestyle like obviously it was a lifestyle to a lot of people there but it's also the birthplace of punk being the soundtrack to skateboarding or surfing or just being a young person at a certain point in the 90s
1: um yeah i mean and, and this was the 80s so you know it was like definitely youth culture it was you know it was kids
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but but even then like you're saying like there were people that saw black flag that went to black flag shows that might have even been quote unquote hardcore kids that had no relationship to punk or no relationship to the ideology it was just part of the soundtrack to their youth
1: oh yeah for sure for sure yeah um w-
0: with the fastbacks did they come to olympia or where did you see them uh was it in seattle
1: um no i saw him in olympia they played uh they played at the um the Tropicana really I, with the Melvins one of the first Melvins shows I think and then we had the record at chaos the EP and I, I remember talking to them too um at that show which is you know just so cool you could just be like a little kid and the band got done playing and you could just go up and say hey this is I like your band like where are you from you know and they would just talk to you like that was just really neat
0: it's also funny how like you were saying earlier like here we are no longer youth still talking about this stuff and you look at the fastbacks like there's this idea of being a lifer in this thing and how punk is like this infection you pick up as a young person that will just stay with you and will like kent mcclard said it in that abolition essay will fuck up your life
1: <laughs> i mean sure there's that side of it to you i mean it I mean, just like, you know, there's pros and cons like it, it has destroyed certain people and it's saved people's lives. You know, there's like I, the positive and the negative, like the nihilism and then the, you know, the, the thing that gives your life meaning. And sometimes it's the nihilism that like gets you through.
0: <laughs> it, it also feels like it's like uh, coming out of the matrix. Like, it's, <laughs> you know, like you step out of it and all the things that people chase in society that are cool. Are uncool and all the things that most people think are are not cool like obscure music and dressing shitty and all this kind of <laughs> stuff become cool it, it very much flips it on its head a little bit
1: yeah i can see that
0: and, and that and carry that with the rest for the rest of your life like anytime i try and fit in a social situation i'm like constantly looking at it through this sort of like weird post bikini kill post minor threat post you know like uh i don't know jello biafra crystal you know where i have to like it all gets fractured and it doesn't look right
1: right <laughs> yeah i don't know i mean i'm sure like someone could write a great movie like a-, a punk matrix <laughs> maybe it's already been good.
0: <laughs> yeah i don't know if we. Need, i don't know if we need that. <laughs> <laughs> I think we could probably cast it in our heads right now and do a better job than the actual but, film would do. Yeah,
1: like, the actual, like, time-traveling aspect of it, or, you know, like, going through portals or whatever, I think that's very real. Like, it's it's very strange.
0: hmm How did the uh, working with Joan Jett
2: come about?
1: Um, The way I remember it is that we were in, like, at the... this group house in D.C. called Pirate House that, like, Guy and Brendan lived at, and Ian Spenonius. And I don't know, it was, like, me and someone from my band, I'm not sure who, and someone, like, knocked on the door of one of the rooms, they're like, we're going to go see Joan Jett. do you guys want to come? And, like, I don't know why, but I was like, no, I'm not going to go, but um, here. And they, they were trying to talk me into going, and I was like, well, I'd never seen her before, I, for some reason, didn't want to go. So they're like, oh, come on, come with us, she's great, live. And I was just like, it's okay. And I was like, but wait, or someone was like, well, give her find a bikini hill tape and we'll try to give it to her. And I was like, okay, well, hang on. And then so I wrote like I like was like, I should put like contact information on it. So I just like wrote for a good time, call Kathleen. And I was like, give this to Joan. <laughs> and I didn't even remember it. Right. So then I didn't tell Kathleen that. And then um at the time, you know, Joan is from um Rockville, Maryland, I think originally, which is near DC. And so she had, was already friends with the Fugazi guys and stuff. And then you know they were hanging out at the show. She was—I know she was a Lungfish fan too, um, you know, probably because they're from Baltimore or whatever. But anyway, so uh, fast forward—I don't know how long, how much time went by—but like we we're at a different punk house in DC. This is when we lived there, so it was '92. And then um, we we're sitting on the porch of this house called the Embassy. And we're doing an interview for like, I don't know, it was like NPR or something. It was like a hard interview and like somebody was, had microphones out and blah, blah, blah. And then some came out and they were like, Kathleen, you have a phone call. And she's like, hey, I'm doing an interview. And they're like, it's Joan Jett. And she's like, yeah, right. And then (laughs) I think she tells the story like from her point of view, like in the movie about Joan Jett or whatever. But like, it really was, you know, she called her on the phone. And then I was like, we really should ask her to record us because she, you know, she recorded the Germs record. And then I don't know, somehow that took like about a year or whatever, but we ended up recording with her and she played on the Rebel Girl single and stuff. And Kathleen and her became really good friends. So that was neat.
0: What was that experience like for you recording? Like were you a Runaways fan or like obviously a germs fan?
1: Yeah. And you know, like when people people used to assume, you know, that I was like a massive Joan Jet fan and like I was like I I really wasn't a massive like I, I can say I can speak with authority on like the Go Go's like I was a I was in the fan club saw them live um, I didn't have MTV you know and my parents didn't have the Joan Jett record my aunt Priscilla gave me some Joan Jett stuff when I was in junior high and I did like it and I remember I remember bristling a little bit like in this this um, you know like how kids are very literal like I remember being like put another dime in the jukebox I'm like a jukebox costs twenty five cents. <laughs> And then I was also thinking about it. I was like, "This is kind of like, it's like, it's like they want you to go back to like happy days and Fonzie, you know, like when kids were playing the jukebox." I'm like, "I'm all like, we play video games, you know what I mean? Like, like we ride our bikes to the place that has video games, and there's no jukebox there." So like, I kind of just was like, "That's kind of hokey a little bit." Like, I did really like the single at first, but then like from the perspective of like like a little kid, it seemed like it was going back to a '70s. Mm -hmm. like the 50s 70s kind of thing yeah Uh, but you know I at the same time I did respond to it as a little kid like I remember roller skating around and liking stuff but I don't know that much about I I didn't consider myself like a massive fan or anything but um I've seen her play live I mean like it's funny because like I played live on a stage with her before I'd ever seen her play live but I've seen her play live recently like 2018 or something she's incredible like you know she's she's magnetic she's incredible i mean i i i feel bad that i ever kind of like try to say that i wasn't a fan because of course like i she's great i just i wasn't i was more a fan of the germs record which was the reason why i wanted to work with her but also like i could just see like in my mind like that her and kathleen would really connect and they totally do you know and and kathleen's um always talking about like how she's got one of the best. um, voices in the you know ever of all time and she's it's really true like her her singing voice is incredible then right is like I um I think like I, I I do love them I heard them only like in the early 90s so I think I would say that they were definitely influenced on Bikini Kill because we were listening to it at the time when the band started
0: well I think it's also you know because you're a hardcore kid right probably you know like a lot of this stuff is you know, like the like uh it's more rock and roll and then and less like coming from the hardcore kind of way of Yeah, and then
1: there was so much sexism against the runaways. Like people thought, you know, it, it was just they you know, it's worse than the go-go's. Like people thought that like they didn't, you know, have any kind of um control over their image, which I mean I guess maybe that's part of that was true, but like they, people just really saw them as manufactured and did not appreciate them for being like Actually, like very groundbreaking, very serious about playing music, you know, real musicians. And I think that the people who did take them seriously were kids like Pat Smear and Darby Crash, and you know, the LA Punk kids that were part of that, like um scene that Rodney's English disco, like those people really took the runaways seriously. Like people who saw them, you know.
0: Steve McDonald and and yeah, Jeff. For sure, yeah. Yeah. The the uh well, and they also, like, not to undercut anything the Go-Go's had to overcome or went through, but they also had, like, by all accounts, a legit predator managing them at the yeah, time, too. So for
1: it, sure. And that had to be very tra- traumatizing, and plus they had to deal with a lot of homophobia, you
0: mm-hmm, know. mm mm-hmm. um, I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you about was you mentioned Seven Seconds last time and them being a, a, a big kind of influence on you at a certain point. When was the first time you saw Seven Seconds? Do you remember? or like some of the times you saw them at least?
1: Um, I saw them twice. So I saw them at Gorilla Gardens, um, I think eighty four, eighty five. 85. Um, I heard them on Calvin's radio show. And one of the first conversations we had was about seven seconds and he put them on a tape for me. Um, and then he's like, you know, you can order the record for $5. Like, and he wrote down the address or whatever. So I ordered the crew or whatever. And then <laughs> it was, I, I saw him on that tour, and then this band MPO opened for them, I think, and that was John Goodmanson's hardcore band, and he ended up recording Bikini Kill with Joan Jett, so it's funny. But yeah, <laughs> his hardcore band like opened for seven seconds um, in, at Gorilla Gardens, and I don't remember who else played, but there's probably a flyer somewhere. And then the second time I saw them was, um, it was like the... I'm. It was 80, early '86, and it was in Olympia. It was a walk together, rock together kind of era. Maybe I'm not sure what album was out, but like I know they did the '99 Lift Balloon song or whatever. They they seemed like a completely different band, and uh, me and my friends like. Uh, that show was really wild because it was Danger Mouse, Melvins, Unseen Force, the Yobs, and Seven Seconds, and it's very memorable because it was at this um. The Olympia Community Center, which has since been torn down, but I think it was the only show that was ever there. So, and it was huge. It was a huge, huge, huge all ages show when hardcore kids came from all over. And it just seemed really out of control, you know, like completely insane and very fun and super positive because by that time, like Seattle had banned all ages shows. And so we had this thing called the YDC, the Youth Defense Council which were these kids that were like, if you p- buy this card for $5, the money will go towards putting on more all ages shows. And you're like, okay, sure. You know, and then you get a lifetime membership or whatever. But then it turned out that they were, had been taken over by like the revolutionary communist party or whatever. They're trying to get you to join. So it was just a little bit confusing, but I joined the YDC and then we started something in Olympia called youth for direct action, which is a little more anarchist YDA. <laughs> but um, anyways, that's another story. But um. The thing that's really memorable about that seven seconds show, though, or a couple things, is like that was when um, I re- first remember seeing the Melvins play "I Flies," "Eyes Fly." How do you say that? The name of the song. I the really slow song. Yeah. Melvins' um, really porch treatment.
0: Yeah, yeah. What is it? "I Fly," "Eyes Flies." Eyes,
1: I I can never remember it's "Eyes Flies" or "Eyes Flies." "Eyes well, Flies." I don't know. You know that yeah, song. Anyway, yeah, that like, song. Yeah. So they're gonna open for seven seconds. So their idea is they're gonna play the slowest song of all time (laughs) to all these like (laughs) kids who just want to hear like fast music and obviously like seven seconds are at that time just doing like melodic pop that's not even fast so like you know the kids with the mohawks and everything there was a lot of like expectation of like we want it to be just like one two three one one two three five you know like that kind of music and it wasn't at all so i thought that was kind of funny like the melvis came out and they played like like that judas priest song uh loaded right and then they went into ice flies and i remember this cuz there's a tape of the show and then after the show um we went like the melvins came over to like my boyfriend's house and i remember like we listened to the tape of their set as soon as the <laughs> show was over and we were all just like in this room like like that's how obsessed with the melvins we were like do you want to come over and drink beer like or whatever you know like we can listen to your tape and then they're like oh yeah sure and so you know I mean we we're friends or whatever and, uh maybe they spent they might have crashed there or something but like so we were like listening to the tape with them and I remember like it was very exciting because they were about to drive down to San Francisco to record glee porch treatments which is why they recorded it and why they wanted to listen to it but then I remember also like we were trying to get um seven seconds to come over and they were, they were like I think we're just going to go to a Mattel 6 and I was just, like Okay, first of all, what punk band goes to a motel and doesn't go hang out at the punk house after the show? And then also, like, they're drinking beer? I thought they were straight edge. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, really confused. <laughs> they're like, oh, we're going to get some beer. And I was like, Seven Seconds drinks beer? And I was like, what?
0: <laughs> the edge break. The edge break gets to a lot of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think it was necessarily everyone, but then, you know, of course, I think about that night a lot because I'm just like, oh, yeah, you know, like when you come to a town and like the kids want to hang out with you afterwards, you're like, we're going to a hotel now <laughs> and we're going to a Motel 6. <laughs> like, we're all going to share one room, but like, we're getting away from you. <laughs> you know what I
0: mean? And then we get that age when you're, you you know, you're a little bit older in a punk band and you're all of a sudden like, yeah, we got to get a motel. There's no way we're staying at this house. <laughs> oh,
1: for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the, uh, the band the old haunts, the band I was in when I was like, when I was turning 40, I was like, you know, I can't do this. Like going to stay at the punk house anymore. Like with my face in the cat litter box. I just, I gotta, I gotta get a motel. <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: A lot of times it's a dice roll. You don't know what the house is going to be like when you, when you
1: get... I mean, and I often did not win that battle. We ended up with a lot of cat litter, you know, type accommodations, which I appreciate, you know, thank you for putting us up, but. I was a little too old for that, I
0: think. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a young person's game that side of the uh, the punk rock uh, socializing post show type thing. But it's it's interesting to kind of think of like what you're describing, where there is that kind of turning point, you know, where where people begin looking other places for for the sounds, you know, like people don't necessarily want necessarily just fast hardcore anymore, and don't necessarily want even the old bands anymore, and there's sort of like this turn towards new bands like the Melvins or you know the other bands that yeah. would kind of like make up the next wave
1: yeah well i mean the melons were around during the fast time of hardcore too and but you know the and then like we said before like those hardcore bands were still you know the dehumanizers were still playing all the time the accused you know they were they were doing the crossover thing but like they you know they were still playing fast
0: yeah definitely well yeah it never went away like you we were saying before too right like bands were still playing fast to this day yeah but yeah. The, but there almost is that Like like Dinosaur Jr., you know, from Deep Wound to Melvin's getting slower. There's this sort of, uh, you know, even even I guess Green River to Mud Honey, or or maybe even Mister Up to Green River before that. Like there's sort of this search for like what's beyond hardcore and punk going on. It feels like.
1: Well, and there was two eras of Green River too. Like the first era was more fast, more thrash. I would say like skate skater thrash kind of, and then the. The last era of Green River, which I really like, was a lot more like Aerosmith kind of <laughs> glammy. You know, they had that like malfunctioning kind of influence. I mean, they weren't the same, but they were they were growing their hair out and, you know, doing. A... I remember Green River having like, you know, like a kind of Iggy and the Stooges presentation that but maybe like a little more glammy in the second uh, era of Green River. Mm-hmm. They were, they still seemed like a skate band like uh you know like in the sense that tales of terror were like skate rock or whatever
0: yeah i love the green river stuff like all the the stuff that was recorded were they like were they playing like all ages type shows or is that like a band that would be playing exclusively kind of more the bar shows that poison idea would wind up playing
1: um in olympia there were no bar shows i mean there were no bar shows for punks at least in the 80s and even in the early 90s there really weren't wasn't um too many but uh in seattle i think green river were playing bars mostly because there it was hard you know there was all ages shows were banned so that's why like when the sub hop stuff started happening they would have those like gigantic i mean this you know the pre-grunge or whatever the beginning of that when those shows started happening their all ages shows were so huge like the lame fest one at the moore theater with i think i can't remember who played like nirvana and maybe ted and Honey or whatever and then the um the one where like dan peters played drums at the motor hall i can't remember what that, that venue called that with the dwarves or whatever those shows were just like so huge because they were all ages you know and like it just it seemed like yeah you'd go up to seattle this and you'd see these like sub-pop bands play or whatever doing the like grungy thing and it was like yeah it was a different era it definitely was because I was like when sub-pop were doing their kind of condescending thing of like yeah we're just going to sell you this stuff and you're going to be dumb enough to buy it you know like kind of thing and then I feel like they would really they would really like do that kind of like insulting marketing scammer kind of thing to to kids you know yeah. it was just it was a little bit jaded
0: yeah and it's it became uh i don't know it became kind of the attitude for for independent labels a little bit like the cockiness like they really did kind of set an approach i guess it existed before like kind of a forced exposure
1: oh uh, yeah no, definitely especially through bruce's writing like he wrote a column for the rocket which was a weekly a free weekly magazine and his writing you know you can read it you know go back and read his sub columns now like he's a great writer, you know, so is Byron, so is um, Mike McGonigal, so is, um, you know, uh, Gerard, like, all of those guys were great writers, but they all had this kind of, like, I mean, to varying degrees, a lot of, there's that aspect of, like, you really got the feeling when you're reading those, those, that writing as a girl, you're, like, oh, they don't expect any girls to be reading this, it's kind of, like, when I was, like, because I'm a basketball fan, and, like, my friend mailed me that, um. Simmons big book of basketball and I'm like reading it and I'm like he doesn't expect like any women to be reading this book you know it's just like assumed that the audience is is like um and it's almost like they can say these kind of like mild, like sexist or mildly sexist kind of like macho kind of tropes just because it's like it's like how guys talk to each other when there's no women in the room kind of thing it was, it was just kind of like annoying so then you know like when um the when I moved down to Eugene, like the guys who live down there, they're really literary. Like they were in, in, they were in the English honors, <laughs> like the, my friends, like the people who are in some velvet sidewalk and snake pit, they were like honors English students at UFO, which is not an, not an easy school to get into. Like in Oregon, you have to have, you know, it's a public school, but it it's the big public school. Like you have to have good grades. So they were good students and they were great writers. And they started making these, my friend started making a music fanzine called True Reality Rock Report. And it was exactly just like a piss take on like the Byron Coley. Like there's like, we're going to tell you exactly what to think about this record. You know, like this is the definitive word. This is the True Reality Rock Report. And they would kind of like make fun of like Sub Pop a little bit. I mean, not in a like, I think they're probably, their dream would be like for Bruce, have it to review their single, right? But like, they're sort of making fun of it too. Um, but, you know, so we, like Olympia, Eugene, people kind of had an attitude a little bit, like, like towards like big city kind of stuff, like, and those guys. And like, when I started Jigsaw, like, I was like, I'm not one of these cool, gonna tell you what to do. Like, this is the way, like, to think about everything type of people, but I wanna make a fanzine. So I was there, you know, also trying to get my voice in there. Um, But yeah, that's definitely a part of it. And like when the Go team went on tour, like we would sell the records distributed by Kay and everyone would just want the sub pop singles that were like the colored vinyl and the limited edition. And I was just like, I don't even know why you guys like this stuff. And I remember like, I, it was just about the rarity and it was just about the colored vinyl. And it was like, you don't even know what this band sounds like. And they're just like, marketing it to you and it's it was just like very frustrating it's like why don't you buy the vaselines this record is actually really good you know that's, no i don't want that one i want this like you know i don't want to bad mouth anyone but they something that i thought was much less of lesser quality or you know more macho or 70s or long hair kind of stuff but i remember i got back from the first go team tour and i was like i'm gonna cut all of my hair off because i had like grown my hair out from punk because it was like You know like bands had longer hair and then like i just like basically shaved my head and then like calvin's like what's going on i was like um yeah i'm not into sub pop and like he was like what do you have against bruce and i was just like it's not the sound of the revolution (laughs) i was just like basically like yeah like i would met like the guys who were gonna go on to start like nation of ulysses or whatever and i was like i'm with these guys you know like we're gonna start a new thing like that's not about like the seventies or like doing drugs or telling people that they're stupid or you know whatever, I don't know. So it was definitely like the nineties were about to start, and it kind of seemed like I could see the future, you know. Like and at the same time, like I was, I I loved Nirvana and you know of course like I adored Kurt and like I I his songwriting. You know to this day it's like of course it's unquestionably great or whatever and i don't lump him in with all that stuff but like at the same time like it seemed a little bit like aesthetically things were going backwards to like the 70s or something you know
2: Hmm.
1: um i like i I don't think i don't include him in that because he was very progressive you know but like a lot of the sub pop shit was it really just seemed like they're just trying to like insult you like and market stuff to you in this way that I didn't appreciate. I mean, now it seems terrible to even badmouth it because, you know, they became a great record label that like helped so much, you know, so many people have, um, uh, basically like be able to be musicians, like working musicians and make a living at it and stuff. And I have like a lot of respect for that, but at the time it was like, mm, I don't know.
0: It's funny because you look at where, the music industry, particularly the vinyl industry, has gone, and they were almost the canary in the coal mine for the commodification of the seven-inch or the record versus it as, like we were saying about zines, like the way the zine was there to give you the music, like you wanted a certain color of vinyl. And once again, I say this in full admittal of my own problem with record collecting, but it it's interesting I mean, to kind of look at that now.
1: I, well, here I'm still. I'm not. I'll say I'm not a record collector, but like <laughs> a lot of records. And that's you got some records. Of, yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of, but you know, I think I I used to buy records because there was like no other way to hear music. You know.
0: Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's it's a, it's a way to touch. Like when I pay a lot of money for a, a record, it's like I'm buying the rejector seven inch, and there's sort of this idea that these guys had folded the seven inch, or there's almost like touching history. Through handling the artifact type thing.
1: I would love to have all that shit, but I don't, you know? And then, and by the time I started like being like, oh yeah, like I don't, like I I bought like a lot of English punk stuff in the nineties over in England, you know, like buzzcock singles or the fall or, you know, uh, the rough trade stuff. Like I have those things, but then I like look at my collection. I was like, I really don't have like American hardcore seven inches or whatever. Like I have very few, um, and, and it's just, they're too expensive. Like, I don't know. Right. Mm-hmm. Even, even like in the nineties, they were too expensive
0: for me. Like given that you've kind of rejected, you know, where, for lack of a better term, grunge, you know, or the sub pop at that point where sub pop was this early on, what did you think on sort of the next mutation of this thing when you had bands that were completely disconnected from punk kind of being lumped into this thing? And you're, you know, obviously your, your thing is completely different, but you are watching this thing kind of unfold. What were your thoughts as, grunge becomes this phenomenon
1: oh you mean like after like nirvana hit top 40 and all that
0: yeah and like you know the rise of pearl jam and sam like obviously soundgarden's part of it but i mean like uh, there there are other bands that aren't necessarily part of this thing and, I, and obviously pearl jam coming out of green river is part of it too but i mean like when the sounds stopped being even just punk throwing back to the 70s it started becoming more just 70s rock for I mean,
1: it, just, it like, to be honest, like, I didn't really pay attention to pop culture. Like, obviously, this is all pop culture, but like mainstream pop culture, like, I did pay attention to it when I was in middle school, like I paid attention to the charts and stuff like that. We I didn't ever I never had MTV ever like until maybe 96 or something. But you know, I was kind of not in the awareness of I think I felt, I feel like one apartment I lived in in like 96 had MTV because I remember watching it then, but, and I remember watching it the summer of 85 when I was babysitting one summer. My knowledge of like what's popular is always just either non-existent or very, um, unless I was super focused on it, like I was in middle school, but like, I didn't really know. Um, So yeah, there's, you know, people talking to me about the nineties. I'm like, I don't fucking know shit about nineties. Like, I'm like, people like, like. My bandmate from Spire in the Web was, like, talking about the Cranberries all the time. I was just like, I don't know what they sound like. They're oh, come on. You know what they sound like. I'm like, I don't. Like, I don't know what who that is. Like, I don't. I just don't know a lot of shit. Like, <laughs> 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 um, you know, so I don't know that I was that aware of it. What the thing, you know, when Nirvana came big, like, or mainstream, like, that was, you know, there was a lot of complicated feelings. But, like, um, one of the things that was very positive about it was like like you know to really see the positive impact that they had like the feminist impact that they had on people like this you know just and like the anti-racist anti-homophobic you know pro women stuff that they would say like that was just so great and also like something that we didn't really talk about is like how many punks used to get beat up you know for just like kind of like crossing like the line of like like what was okay for like a boy to dress like or whatever it's Mm -hmm. like oh if you're wearing that then you must be a fag and then you know I'm gonna kill you kind of shit like you know there's real casualties like one time I was standing out in front of the Tropicana and it was like raining and um some like for lack of a better term like redneck came by like in like a truck and threw a tire iron that like brushed my temple like i I felt the force of it go by like this and broke the window like you know like that and if it had hit me i could have been killed right oh yeah or blinded or you know brain dead or whatever and there you know some people actually were like this guy rick lewis he was like the um singer for a while this man the moral robbers he did a radio show he did like the maximum rock and roll radio show on chaos and um he like was going to a show at gorilla gardens on new year's eve 1985 with a bunch of friends and like a gang of kids like jumped somebody and he came to their assistance and they beat him to death basically you know and using like homophobic slurs and he was like a punk and you know um he was in a wheelchair for two years and he died like shit, like that happened so like when nirvana like was you know becoming big like and that they are having like a positive impact on culture to my to in my view like people became more tolerant you know it, like even here like it would be like i remember like punk like if you look like punk like you go to the store and like people be really rude to you and like, um, Justin from unwound and me, like made up this song that was, um, it was a really goofy song, but we like made it up one time that was like, um, Said, like thank you nirvana for buying us beer thank you nirvana for letting us practice here and we sang it like in this really like thank you nirvana for buying a beer thank you for nirvana for letting us practice here and like it was like because you could go to the 7-eleven and they wouldn't id you because they'd be like are you in a band cool you know and then like they wouldn't call the co- like the cops would come and they'd be like are you kids in a band Oh great! Is the sound you know like? Do you know Kurt Cobain or whatever? And like they wouldn't give you a ticket, you know, like just shit like that. Like it changed. Like I mean, this is Olympia, right? So like it really changed. And everybody here has like a fucking Kurt Cobain story. is like, oh, Kurt Cobain's uncle, blah 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 blah. And you know, half of that shit is not true. Like I don't even bother to tell people anything. Like I'm just like, whatever, <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah. What I mean? yeah. Well, it, I,
1: it's... Do, I do think that they had a largely positive impact.
0: Oh, absolutely. Like. Like you were saying last time we talked about that Sex Pistols thing that may or may not have been on 60 Minutes. Like, you need these massive cultural moments to get the next generation of kids that are going to be the DIY scene on board. And I think you're seeing it now with Turnstile and the kind of explosion in popularity of that band where hopefully this replenishes the scene. You know, and like the the 12 and 13-year-olds and 11-year-olds that got into punk because of Nirvana are the... 21-year-old kids running the DIY spaces in their local town and, and getting bands to play and, and doing Food Not Bombs. Like, it like every band that comes on the show, like, it's amazing. They're a band that, you know, Fat Mike from No Effects said they're the reason he was able to kind of continue to do this thing as a living. And just, it was a, a cultural shift that changed music forever.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we like Kill Rockstars like was I mean, I say we because I worked at that label for almost 20 years. Like we were able to, you know, like at the same time, we're going like, don't sign to a major label or whatever. But the fact that they did sign to a major label, put everything in the mainstream and then would talk about their hometown scene, like in public, like like they would talk about Bikini Kill. They would talk about bits of depression, you know, and and stuff like that and then people would write us a letter and like actually like Nirvana was on the first Kill Rockstars compilation and that was you know like if that if that hadn't all happened like there might not have been money to put out the first Bikini Kill EP you know and there certainly wouldn't have been like we wouldn't have sold 10,000 of them like immediately like I don't think like I mean like maybe like we could have built up that momentum but there was stuff like it wasn't just that it was also like Ian McKay recorded the EP you know so people had it on their radar, and then. Um, You know, there was there's a lot of complicated relationships between the underground and the mainstream that actually helped the underground thrive. That is definitely true.
0: Well, it's interesting because I think, you know, you in Bikini Kill exists almost on both sides of this Nirvana explosion that's happening at like one time. Like you're saying, like, you know, it helped you. But I think at the same time, you're also part of this DIY hardcore thing that also was so big and your band is so important to that. It's almost like I'm, I'm just fascinated by your perspective because you you are seeing it from both sides of this thing at the same time.
1: Yeah. And, you know, for us personally, it was very sad because like our friends got famous and then we never really saw them again. You know, it's not like the last time I saw Nirvana was like October 31st, 1991. You know, I didn't see them ever again, you know, and I mm-hmm. saw like all their early shows, like even before they were called that or whatever. So, you know, it was, it was quite sad in a way, but, you know, and also like the drugs and shit like that, but um, like, it, you know, it's hard to talk about, but like yeah. a lot of that stuff really was positive.
0: Well, I guess shifting gears a little bit. Um, what do you think it is about the Melvins that attracted this cult? Like it goes on to the day, like they're the band that I would describe. They're almost like, like, they're like a cult band, like the definition of what a cult band is, but it seems like that, like you're saying began right away where people are going and hanging out with them to listen to live recordings of their show just after they happened kind of in the beginning Oh, not right at the beginning
1: but the last Melvin show I saw was like right before covid so i guess it was like probably november 2019 or whatever um when i was in la and it was maybe one maybe the best melvin show i've ever seen like they just continue to fucking get better like i don't know like any band that that that's true of you know and they don't rest they don't, they're not just like playing the oldies, right? They're like writing new shit. They're always moving forward. I mean, they're, they're incredible. They're incredible musicians. They're tapped into some like crazy life, death, force field of like power. And, you know, I don't even know how to describe it. Like if you've seen them and you've experienced it, you know, there's, it's, it's like, there's, there's, I don't even necessarily believe in God, but there's like, there's God and there's Satan and there's, death and there's life and there's this force that it's just it's not just music like I don't know how to explain it like they're I mean to not overuse the term but they're like truly sublime like they're in touch with something that's like out of this world like it's not just it's not just like they're a good band like they're beyond music to me
0: yeah they're like I totally get what you're saying because I feel this the same way about them where It's almost like these two people that have signed like a uh, like this Faustian deal with whatever forces out there that they're just going to live this art to the extreme. But like they're one of the only, like they're like a band like the Grateful Dead that I would love people just to be trading different tapes of live performances because, like you're saying, they're they're still putting on like shows of their lives, unlike the Grateful Dead. (laughs) That's far into their career.
1: Yeah, and one of they're the you know one of the only consistencies of my life really like during yeah. quarantine and, and COVID and everything. I was like very extremely isolated, having like you know live challenges like being so isolated. And like the Melvins were still putting on live shows that were they you know you could live stream them or whatever. I guess they were pre recorded, but you could stream the them and it cost like five dollars or whatever. And like. I would, you know, text my friend Jill and be like, we're going to go to this Melvin show at this time, you know, and we're going to text each other and watch the Melvins. And like, seriously, like it, it, it was a true gift, you know? Yeah. And then but- also, like, it's funny, like when the Melvins broke up, um, you know, the first time supposedly the Melvins broke up when they moved to California, it was like, I felt like my life is over. And then I was like, what is wrong with you? Like, you need to start your own band. <laughs> like, you yeah, can just like, but I just remember like walking around going like, how is this possible that this band could have broken up like who even am i and i was just like clearly like it's time to get on with your life you know like and it's funny because they're always just like no one gave a shit about us in the northwest and i was just like i beg to differ there was a small group of people who cared a lot you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah well it's it feels like like it's almost like a cult like and I, I can't seal well obviously buzz is very charismatic and kind of holds a room but i can't see them courting that uh, maybe they did at that time but like to me it just feels like they had that effect on people naturally where people wanted to kind of like especially young people wanted to be around this band and kind of be around that power
1: yeah i mean it's like it, it wasn't image or anything it was just realness it was like clearly they worked harder than everybody else and they probably still do um, so there's that but then also there's just something that they tap into that's just there that that they I don't know for lack of a better word they like channel it you know Like it's like this live energy that comes through them and they connect in using sound it's almost like sculpture or something it's not really quite like music and you know it's influenced it uh, clearly it influenced Nirvana so it influenced like all of culture but it's also just like if look at look at like um Greg Anderson's you know from what false Liberty son and all that like that and then dylan from earth and you know like it became this whole thing but it also fucking influenced bikini kill you know like it's not just it's not just uh a genre you know it's like i mean at least for for me and i think you know to varying degrees other people too
0: yeah no definitely like fucked up would not be fucked up without the melvins like we're they're a band that uh you're you, hearing as a young person like the way the, the one like you're saying the positive thing about Nirvana is like the Melvins all of a sudden went from being this sort of like cult thing in Los Angeles on Alchemy Records to being like a mainstream band that were on much music so I I would see them and you could buy their CDs in stores and they were on Atlantic and and so like yeah they they changed my life.
1: Yeah, and I don't know, they're just incredible performers, but it's, it almost seems like a joke to say to performing, but it is performance, like it's, it's not theater, like it's not entertainment, but it is performance, like, like I've talked to Buzz about it, and he's just like, yeah, like, I think of a live show as like, as one piece of music, you know. I'm just like, how do you guys even sync up like that? Like, I don't see anyone count off the song. Like, we just like look at them and like, are they counting it off like by blinking their eyes? But they're not looking at each other, you know. So like, how do they know when to go into the next part? Like to this day, like I don't like I can play drums pretty good. I can't fucking do. I don't. I don't understand what sales drumming is. You know, like I can try and play along with it. I can try to tap my fingers along with it. It's like I can't count it, you know, like I I don't get it. Like it's just, it's just this very, I don't want to say complicated because it almost seems like simple, but there's just something going on there that I don't understand with my brain, but it, I just like feel it, you know?
0: Oh yeah. I saw them do uh, a wipers cover and it was the best wipers song I've ever heard. And I love the wipers. Like they're one of my favorite bands, but hearing their version of the wipers song, I'm like, Holy fuck, I think I've heard the way this song was meant to be played.
1: Yeah, The Youth of America. That was amazing.
0: Insane. Like, and and Bus was telling me it's based on a version he saw them play live once. And that's like way back when. And that's what he's built this cover on.
1: That was probably the show I missed. Yeah, because I was too young. I don't know. I had this memory of like the Wipers playing Youth of America at the show that I saw. And then I listened to the live tape and it's not on there. And I was just like, maybe they did it as an encore. Because mm-hmm. I, I, but you can't trust your memory, right? Because you're just like, well, maybe I just made that up. Like I thought that happened, but I could have just invented it.
0: It's interesting to look at Buzz and Ian and the similarity I see between the two of the Ian Kai. I mean, obviously, I the, the similarity between the see between these two guys is they both placed great, like not value on what they did, but they knew how important the work they were putting out is, which I think is. Like, I certainly don't feel that level of of confidence in what I put out. Like, there's a level of insecurity to what I'm doing and, and feeling it out. But I feel with those two guys, there's, like, this sort of singularity in vision where they knew right from the get-go. Like, they're just teenagers putting out these, you know, awesome but shitty punk bands. But they knew that these things were going to be celebrated all these years later somehow, or on some <laughs> level, at least, it seems.
1: Or maybe they just took it seriously, you know, like maybe it was I don't know, like they definitely took it seriously. And I think that's why people are, you know, so able to make fun of Ian McKay, because he takes shit seriously and he actually cares, you know, and that can come across as like humorous sometimes. But um, the thing that I'll say that they do have in common is they're both Aries. Oh,
2: wow.
1: (laughs) This is. Make it. To make it astrological. and <laughs> I actually think of them as being similar personalities. And I also feel like there's something about this funny about both of them is like you can't bullshit either one of them. They can at least with me, like there's they look at you and they know what the fuck you're thinking. and that, that's why they're so good at like fucking with people because they can fucking tell what you're thinking even if you don't say it right
0: there there are also two people that have never been wrong,
1: and they're both really really <laughs> funny.
0: Yeah, very funny, but also, I have never won an argument with either one of them because they are never wrong.
1: Well, yeah, let's just say that they they know what they both know their own minds. They know what mm-hmm. their own beliefs are, and it's mm-hmm. very clear to them.
0: Yeah, and it's just like that that idea of these two people that followed their their own vision. Like, I don't see either of them. I had this conversation with someone the other day, like. Who would be the person Ian would freak out to meet that he would be super excited about? Because, like, you know, obviously, Henry, you see him around different musicians, and he gets very excited. you know, And you see the other side of Henry Rollins when he's, like, geeking out about Dinosaur Jr. or something. But you never – I can't imagine Ian ever having that in the same way I can't imagine Buzz ever having that.
1: I mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like Ian does have that, you know? Like, um, I mean, maybe not in a Rollins kind of way, but I remember him, like, showing me some shit that he – uh, like i was at discord house one time and he like showed me some stuff that he got like on that time that minor threat like took the bus to la or whatever and he's like showing me some germs flyers and like telling me about that stuff and i was just like he's like oh you like the germs like come check this shit out and i was just like i was like i i mean i feel like he's very reverent about that stuff you know mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. no he's he's one of us like you know, like I, I, like a hardcore kid you know like this idea that you know we're all, like, we're talking about, like, oh, I, I was, I brought up earlier for my, like, the navel gazing that punk rock has and that we're all interested in the way we were brought to this culture and and how we fit into this culture, I find.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, it's a good question. What would Ian freak out about? I don't know. <laughs> I was,
0: the nuge, but the nuge is too fucked up politically. I was trying to think of <laughs> Lux Interior, maybe.
1: Yeah, maybe. I don't know.
0: I, I can't picture him asking for an autograph. That would be. The, <laughs> I just don't see that ever happening. But maybe, maybe it does. Maybe there's someone out there. I mean,
1: I'm I know I know people who know him better. I can ask. <laughs>
0: okay. Okay. Get back to me. On that. I don't
1: talk to him very often, but I, you know, I haven't seen him in a while. But yeah, it's like it's a fascinating question now that you brought it up.
0: You have sold me on astrology, though, with telling me <laughs> that Buzz and Ian have the same symbol, a star symbol, because there's. I have no other reason to explain the similarities other than this, I think. But uh, I am I'm now going to pursue this uh, I'm good, line yeah,
1: I'm of read about read about the Aries. They're the baby of the zodiac.
0: I got to, I got to now. Um, one thing I want to ask you about also that you brought up last time was born against, and you know you mentioned how they were one of the bands that kind of got you back into to liking hardcore around a, a time period. But when did you first see them, and and what was it about that band you think that, that kind of got you hooked again for for that kind of sound?
1: um well we played with born against the nation of ulysses on out in some shows in the northeast in like 1991 and um i didn't really know that hardcore well i think i mentioned before i don't know that much even about the original like hardcore like new york hardcore or boston hardcore like any of that i didn't really know much about it i knew about dc and like you know negative approach and that kind of the necros and all that but i didn't really know much about the bands in the in the northeast part of the country, hardcore bands, anyways. um So yeah, it was interesting to me because like somebody said that like we played a matinee at CBGB. I don't think that happened, but I I got an argument with someone about. It. I was like that show wasn't a matinee, but it's like okay, yes it was. I was like no it wasn't. But um we did play with Born Against at CBGB, Unwound, and Nation of Ulysses. I don't really remember watching them though. Like I I don't remember being like super into Born Against until. Uh, Brooks was in it honestly mm-hmm.
0: yeah as you mentioned his drumming and it, it is I don't know they're they're a fascinating band to look at too because they were a band that as everything's getting you know exploding and getting more popular they're the the band that is sort of waving that DIY all ages flag a little bit
1: I remember now like okay I, I do remember what it was about Sam in particular though before Brooks was in the band so we played this show in 91 like at Wesleyan College and it was what it that show was during the day and uh my friend steve doris hardcore band mod also played that show and he was like 14 years old which we didn't meet him then but like you know we're still friends today so it's funny but like kathy and i were like in the i don't know the lounge or something like at wesleyan like this fancy bathroom and we're putting on makeup and trying to like Get ready for our show. We were not on the bill. <laughs> we were like, we're playing this show. Like, why didn't you put us on it? Or whatever. We're on to And they're like, like, we just couldn't get you on the bill. And we're like, we're gonna play anyways. And so we were just like basically told everyone we we're gonna play. So we we're like getting ready to play and like not really paying attention to this hardcore band or whatever. And then um, Sam like ran into the bathroom and he had like a megaphone, I think. Maybe not a megaphone. He had maybe he was just screaming, but he was like, I was like, that's the singer of the band. And he like ran into the bathroom and he was just like screaming like in our faces and i was like what's up with that guy and it honestly it's like reminded me of doc dart or something and i was like that guy's incredible and then like you know i remember like talking to him and being like he's like the most neurotic person that i've ever met <laughs> you know like hearing like all of this like just constantly apologizing and you know all this stuff and then like hearing about all this like crazy stuff of something like well they're in a, you know they're gonna have to leave new york because like the guys from what Sick of it all, want to kill them and all this shit. And I'm like, who's sick of sick of it all? Like, I didn't know any of that shit. And I was just like, So there's like these gangsters in New York, and then they like in the hardcore scene and they hate Born Against and blah blah blah. And it just seemed really interesting to me. And then I I started reading his columns in Maximum Rock and Roll. And I think I wrote him a letter. Um, you know, and we started becoming pen pals or whatever. But uh by the time Brooks was in the band, like I was really into it. And also, like I'd never, I don't think I'd ever heard like um was that band that they're really influenced by Articles of Faith Is yeah that
2: right? yeah from I, Chicago I didn't
1: have those records and I, I remember like our um I think it was Alternative Tentacles like put those out on CD and I started listening to that I was like you guys are just like exactly ripping off Articles of Faith and he's like yeah I know it's kind of embarrassing <laughs> I was like, so like I'd never heard it so you know to me it was like really exciting but I still think they're a great band, you know. They were an incredible live performer, incredible live performer, really funny, great writer. Um, we used to just, like, talk on the phone, you know.
0: Yeah, though they're one of my, uh, you know, I never got to see them live, but I just, like, through videos and obviously loving their records. And Kill Rockstar was reissued. Is that, I guess that eventually leads to the Kill Rockstar's reissues.
1: Yeah, yeah, that must, it's hard to remember. I feel like I used to have all the matrix numbers memorized and i can't even remember what we put out but yeah i think we did we put them out on cd right Because yeah. you stopped doing the label
0: yeah yeah they went back into print at that point and i and you know like a, a band that once again probably found like a whole other audience because of the association with kill rock stars um because kill rock stars was kind of part of a different world than born against occupied
1: yeah i mean we had well we had like a lot of uh different kinds of people ordered the record I, that was what was kind of cool about kill rock is it wasn't just one aesthetic you know it, was, yeah. it wasn't it wasn't genre-based label it was like all different kinds of music
0: yeah no and, and that's why i guess i love all that stuff from the pacific northwest because it all does feel like punk to me but it, it's it's all sounds different like did you consider riot girl and bikini kill like you've felt like you were a hardcore or did you i don't mean to put this on you did you feel like you were a hardcore band or a punk band or did you feel like you were doing something that's a break from that
1: i mean by that point i was very i was like really like a, when the beginning of first started i was like against hardcore coming back so like i wouldn't have said i wouldn't have said that we were hardcore and i remember like uh before we moved to dc like i was pen pals with Guy Pachoto and also with ian Svenonius and tim green and um Cynthia Connolly, you know, like writing a lot of letters when the year that Bikini Kill was starting, I remember writing to Guy, like, you know, I think, I don't think Punk is viable, you know, I think we need to start something else. And he was just like, I think you should reconsider. Like, I, I don't think like, just because like, dumbasses you know have taken over punk or whatever like doesn't mean or it's not it's not over like we can still it's still useful and i him like telling me like like me like mentioning to him like maybe we'll just start something else and just like punk will be over he was just like no no like punk is going to continue and you you don't need to like let the people who are doing all this who are ruining punk for you don't let them define it like you can define it that's what punk is kind of thing and like that really st- stuck with me so I think we, I felt more like we were like the sex pistols, you know, like in a punk way, like doing like a more like Avengers sex pistols kind of thing when Bihini Kill first started. Um, but if you look at it from a cultural perspective and I have talked about it, like when I talked to my friends in England or whatever, like it's like, no, we were part of American hardcore. Like, because culturally we were, like we weren't trying to take it to the mainstream. Like, you know, we weren't trying to get on TV. Right. Or, you know, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that wasn't our main ambition. It wasn't like we wouldn't have been on TV. Someone asked us to play SNL, we would play SNL. But like that wasn't what we were going for. Right. We were trying to create this culture outside of the music industry because we wanted we believe in this ideal of cultural democracy that you don't have to fucking buy culture at the store. You can create it and share it with your friends. You know, like you can you want to have a party, like start a band. You know, you don't have to like hire a band that already exists like you create you don't have to buy it at the store you just like create it it's for it's you know it's a kid created universe basically
0: did you ever get approached by major labels at, at you know yep. uh, and was that ever like a a temptation or is that just something that's too ridiculous to even consider
1: for me that was this hard no you know yeah. I was I was completely closed-minded about it I was like no I would rather quit the band Um, you know, I, I can't speak for everyone else, but I think we're in agreement about that, you know, and, but, you know, my, my main reason for that was realism. Like it wasn't, it wasn't even just, um, politics, although, you know, my politics at the time were very much like DIY, like fuck major labels, you know, fuck corporations, like this is existing outside of it or whatever, like realistically that would have broken up the band, you know, it for sure would have broken up the band like we could barely make decisions you know in a DIY realm like it was hard for that it was hard for us to to function and you know for some of the same reasons that like like I don't know I wouldn't want some of the some of the people at the time in our band to have that much access to that much money like like the whole thing like with Kurt like you know like you take someone with an addictive personality who's like got mental illness and you know untreated mental illness and addiction issues and you give them all the money in the world and you put them on tour forever like we didn't need that kind of shit in our band
0: well, and it's interesting there's no one looking out for you like considering yeah. that you are a commodity to these people at these labels you think they would have people looking out for their investments and and trying to provide psychological help and trying to provide these things to keep these people together but
1: i mean there, there there's way too many people making way too much money you know but at the same time like you would hope that someone i mean i i would hope like i don't know enough about it i would hope there were people i i know there were people that cared that were trying to help but like you know at the same time like you can't you can't um you can't save someone like you really can't you know like if they're gonna self-destruct they're gonna self-destruct so it was unfortunate like it was really unfortunate that the way that that all went down and it it should not have happened that way
0: you know and not to excuse what happens with people but i think at the same time that we are provided with the industries with the tools to self-destruct in this industry like every night there's going to be booze backstage no matter what and even if you try and keep that booze away there's going to be someone that wants to buy you a drink or someone that's going to want to slip you some drugs like it just feels like it's so baked into this industry yeah in for sure.
1: Ways. i mean you know like to, uh, and on the positive side we have music cares and music cares has gotten many of my friends into rehab and you know it doesn't always work the first time rehab doesn't work for everyone but like it saves lives like if you're in a band and you are having substance abuse problems like even if you're in an underground band check out music Cares. like, they can actually help you get your shit together. It does work, you know, for some people.
0: When you got to DC, did you ever see band like any of the hardcore stuff? Because you are because the DC thing had almost become, it seems like from when I talked to people, like a thing unto itself at a certain point in DC, the discord thing. Um, and there was like another scene that existed at the same time. were you, Did you, were you have Jeff feet in both worlds or are you mainly part of the discord world when you're in DC?
1: Um, you mean, like, Royal Trucks and all that?
0: Well, Royal or, Trucks, certainly, but, like, even, like, there's, like, Battery or bands that are more kind of the ebullition side of things that are, are you know, like, the the younger bands that would be more kind of in keeping with Born Against or Unwound. I mean,
1: we for sure played shows with some of those bands. I don't remember super well, like, what those bands, who they, I don't remember that much about that scene. Like, Amanda McKay's band, uh, mm-hmm. Desperado, is that what they're called? I can't remember
0: yeah, and like um, there's Battery Damnation AD and and uh, Far Cry. And there's like a lot of obviously more hardcore stuff happening too at the same time.
1: We definitely played a lot of hardcore shows and um, with a lot of straight edge bands that I didn't find very uh, engaging. Um, we personally, but, you know, we also played with our friends a lot. Like we played with Nation of Ulysses a lot. We tried to play with Royal Trucks so many times because we were actually obsessed with them or at least uh, Billy and I were, and I think to some degree, Kathy was, the the last time they canceled, um, you know, they always said that they'd play with us. They never did. I never even got to see him. Um, but, like, we would, like, write them letters. Like, um, some of us worked with Jennifer, but, like, um, that's another story. But, like, it was hard to, uh, you know, bridge that gap between like you'd go to 9 30 club because we could get in free to a lot of shows we didn't have any money when we lived there I mean you know at all and so some of the perks would be like well if we get into 9 30 show 9 30 club tonight we could probably like go hang out backstage and maybe like someone would have like a sandwich that we could eat like you know it was just that kind of desperation of like you got like I remember hanging out with babes in toyland and like one time like Michael Stipe or like you know someone was like oh this is my friend Michael Stipe, or you know, and then like Dave Girls here, and like, are you? Know, you see people like that, and I'd be like, w- it was just be, like, okay, can I have the sandwich? Be, like, <laughs> yeah. You can take the whole deli tray home, you know? <laughs> like, we we're really struggling when we lived there, but um, oh,
0: yeah, I've stolen AFI's orange juice, I know, I know the feeling,
1: <laughs> but I remember like you'd see like, you know, Jennifer Harriman. Um, Neil, they would like come into the show and they would look so cool. You'd be Mm -hmm. like, how can anyone be that cool? You know? So basically like we're kind of obsessed with them um, or some of us were kind of obsessed with them. And that was interesting. Um,
0: When she was on the show, it's wild that she was like a hardcore kid. Like she was like going to void shows and, and minor threat shows. And she was saying that the big influence on her for Royal trucks in, in the melody behind all the distortion was listening to discharge, which I thought was so awesome.
1: Oh that's cool. I have to listen to that one. I didn't listen to it. I have seen her perform um now but not never when never when I live in DC. Um I I think think she's amazing and the guitar playing in that band is incredible too. We made friends with Chris bald when we lived in DC and he roadied for us for a while and that was really exciting because it was like the Frumpies practiced at U Street which was like his practice space and um he was very supportive of the Frumpies and um and Bratmobile and something he left. He loved like Riot Girl or whatever, and uh, so that was cool. I was like, oh god, you know, it was like you meet somebody who's in the faith, like that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, is it is it weird now that every seemingly quote unquote alternative band from the '90s gets lumped in with Riot Girl? It seems like I, it certainly by the music press, it seems like that happens.
1: Well, I mean, that brings up the question of like, it's funny because like I or I just did an interview like a couple days ago about this, but like we don't. I mean, like people now are just like, Bikini Kill is Riot girl, Like it's a synonymous thing. And it's like, first of all, we didn't feel that way at the time. Second of all, like um, it's not a musical genre. It wasn't then, it's not now. It's like, well, you is it even worth saying that it's not? Because people think it is. It's like, well, okay, it can like, it's a marketing term. You can create a Spotify play- playlist or whatever the fuck. But like, I don't know hardly any bands at the time that would have called themselves that, you know? And we definitely didn't call ourselves that. I think Bradmobile and Heavens to Betsy probably did. But, like, I don't know. Like, I would be so fucking annoyed if I was in a band. If, like, I was a woman in the band in the 90s. And, like, the only way that, like, I would get written about. And I'm talking about this, like, as if I'm not me. Like, if I'm, like, in a different band. And, like, if someone was, like, writing about an article about Rykel and then they lumped me in. That would be so frustrating. Like, say, for example, like, Seven Year Bitch. Seven Year Bitch are constantly like, well, we weren't really right, riot girl band, like, you know, like, we knew some of those people, and we supported it, and they totally did, Um, you know, if they're talking about us, or Brantmobile, or whatever, and it's like, but we didn't really, you know, we saw of ourselves as more of, like, a hard rock, like, you know, and basically, like, it's kind of sexist, because, like, if anything, like, the Gits and Seven Year Bitch, and, you know, even L7, like, they were in the same scene as, like, Nirvana, like, they were rock bands, you know, and so- we were more of a punk scene. um. For, you know, if we are going to accept even that that's a genre, but like it became like this thing that like, yeah, like people had to um, had to talk about all the time. And I'm like, you know, it's not even like a useful framework in some ways. Like, why can't we just talk about like feminism within punk or like women in punk or whatever, like political hardcore? Like, why does it always have to be based on, on this one scene that's like almost like mythological, like a jackalope or, you know, like. I don't know. Like, I could go get a PhD and write my thesis on it, just like all these other people have done. And I'm sure there's a lot of money in that. But, like, you know, uh, is it real? Like, did it even happen? I, I mean, yes, yes, it happened. But, like, what happened? I don't fucking know.
0: Well, you got to write a book, right? You know that. Like, at one point, there's got to be your music book. And it doesn't necessarily have to be an autobiography or anything. But just, like, you just experienced so much and contributed so much to this thing. Like, it would be fascinating to read it all put to paper
1: part of why i'm like doing these interviews is because i have like i have some time and so i'm just like well yeah i have a lot of stories but like what do people really want to know what 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 about like the things that i've experienced like is worth sharing to you know the larger group or whatever so thank you for the conversation
0: well anytime anytime and when the book comes out i hope you come back (laughs) for another session of epic conversation this now toby is the longest episode ever (laughs) I've turned okay. out a punk, and I—I <laughs> I, I cannot think of a more worthy guest. So thank you for joining You doing should it.
1: like, you should break it up into chunks so people don't get bored.
0: Oh my gosh, no! This is this has to be put out <laughs> in its epic form, unedited. <laughs> Come on!
1: All right. Well, thank you for your time too. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Toby, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, at some point. Toby will be back for a part, part two. And uh, hopefully that book will be coming at some point because I cannot wait to read that thing. And that is that check out bikini kill on tour. Check out that girl sperm record. And uh, yeah, that is it. Oh my gosh.
2: Oh,
0: I'm, I'm buzzing from that episode. I'm very excited about that one. That was a fun one. Speaking of fun coming up on the next episode, a turned out a punk. They just announced their first North American uh, tour shows, at least. Um, Well, they've announced it one, at least so far that I know of from the UK from the band, big Joni, Stephanie Phillips will be on the show joining me to talk about punk to talk about British punk to talk about DIY. It's a fun conversation and I am very excited for you to hear it. And that is on the next episode of this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening as always. Black lives matter. The lives and issues of indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and their rights and stop hate and violence towards people of different faiths and different races and different nationalities. Because what we're talking about here isn't politics. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be able to live free from hatred and discrimination. And I add to that, people deserve to have the right to choose what they want to do with their reproductive systems. And that must be a right that's protected because people are coming for these rights in, in Canada too. This is not just something that's happening in the United States. I'm sure it's happening all over the world because there are people that see benefit in denying people their rights. And if there are organizations that are doing good work that you believe in, get involved in them, lend your time, lend your money, if you can lend your voice because the world gets better when you start making it better. Speaking about making things better, speaking about, speaking of making things better, anyone can do this shit. Start a band, start a fanzine, start a, start a podcast, start, start something, just contribute to the culture in some way because it gets better when you, when you add to it and, and it'll make you, it'll make you feel better too. Maybe just start by drawing some pictures for yourself. Just do something creative. Speak about doing something to sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you don't need them. And I've seen miracles happen when people sign their organ donor cards. I've seen it with my own eyes and it is truly amazing. And because you don't need those organs anymore at that point at all, maybe try meditating Cause I didn't believe in it and I tried it and it works for me and maybe it'll work for you. It's something that you have to force yourself to do, but every time you do it, you feel better afterwards. Well, speaking for myself and maybe, it'll, maybe it'll work for you too. What's the worst that can happen? Just try it. All right. That is it for me. Thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode.